Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams, and it's nothing but the truth. It is uh, July the 12th, 2015, and we are fortunate to have... Uh, Gordon Comstock with us, and and Gordon uh, has been doing uh, his usual, his uh, personal research, and uh, uh, he's going to share some of his insights about the Rockefeller and uh, what's going on with medicine and etc. I imagine I'll let Gordon explain more when we get into this. Uh, just to remind our folks, you can find. Uh, some of uh, some of Gordon's work, as far as reading of some of these important books of the past that seem to be deleted from the memory of humanity, on uh, thinkorbebeaten.com. You can also find some of his work on Jane Ambas, that's A-M-B-A-S, YouTube channel. Um, and Gordon has been one of those people that's influenced me greatly over the past several years. Um, in fact, Gordon, as I, I'll mention again, I'll keep on mentioning it, it was Gordon, and in particular, along with Keith Hansen, that convinced me to maybe open up the the Bible and to follow my face and praise to God if, what he, if, it, if it's true about who Jesus Christ is and what was said about him. And so he has had a dramatic influence on my life, which is quite ironic because in reality, we live in different parts of the world and I'll probably never have the privilege of meeting Gordon and yet through the internet of all things <laughs> I'm learning the truth from this gentleman so I'm very indebted to Gordon and I'm very grateful that he is here on the show so with that Gordon how are you doing okay yeah I know we had to go through the formalities where he did this earlier before the show so <laughs> We both talk about our, our our week and what's going on in our personal life. So, um, yeah, man, I'm really looking forward to this. Um, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, I haven't done a lot a lot of research on the Rockefellers. So, but I know that uh, Knights of Malta, their connections with Rome. I know that they've been involved in a lot of dirty business. And I imagine what you have to share with us will be an eye-opener. So what do you have to share with us? Uh, about, I guess it was about six or seven years ago, uh, I was listening to an interview on the uh, the, the legendary Visigoth show, and uh, it was one of the interviews that Visigoth did with the I-Man, the Informer. Okay. And the Informer referenced a book by an author I had never heard of. It was uh, well, quite a, a reference. I forget what it was, but just total, um, like paradigm, total counter what everybody would tell you historically. The book, that book was um, 
what was it? The, it was a 19, I think, 68 book. It might have even been the, the last of this author. The book was The Federal Reserve Conspiracy and the Rockefellers, something uh-huh. like that. And the author was Emanuel Josephson. And so I went and tracked that book down, out of print, of course. Uh, you, you can get them used. I got one used uh, online. You will, but it's not being published anymore. And no wonder, because of the, the stuff that Emanuel Josephson was exposing. Can, can, I, interrupt, can I interrupt you yeah. just a little bit? Is, is the book, uh, The Federal Reserve Conspiracy and the Rockefellers, That's the, gold, the, the gold or, their golden corner? Yep, yep. Okay, just for people, for future reference, just with this look, he's talking about the Federal Reserve Conspiracy and Rockefellers, their golden corner. Okay, yep. It's, uh, yeah, that was, and that was a very eye-opening book. And I come to, then I, over the subsequent years, few years, I got into invest tracking down uh, some of the other books written by this historian, Emmanuel Josephson, and it turns out his uh, career, his his career as a historian, writing books, spanned from the 1930s, say the mid 1930s, maybe even the early, but uh, all the way to the late 1960s. And he was an MD. He was a, a doctor himself uh, with the AMA and. Um, I, I read some of his earlier books, and that, that I'm going to focus on one of those today. His books always do tend to focus on exposure of the Rockefeller clan. His books are extremely eye-opening, and they uh, totally run counter to whatever story, you, uh, just about any story from mainstream history. But uh, he's got so many details in here because he's writing about events that he was part of and seeing and took, place, took part in. Uh, I am now of the opinion that Emmanuel Josephson must certainly be in the top five, maybe maybe even the top three historians, real historians, that this civilization has ever produced. Really? Uh, well, he, yeah. uh, and I would grade that partly upon the, the truth-telling, uh, what he exposed, uh, and but also I would the fact that his career spanned so long I got to give him credit for that also he, he really was so prolific uh, it, this guy there's an, another fantastic book of his it's called The Strange Death of uh, Franklin uh, of FDR Franklin Roosevelt uh, that was a very opening book eye opening book um, this book here that I want to focus on was written in 1952, and it's called Rockefeller Internationalist, The Man Who Misrules the World. <laughs> and of all his books, some of his other books focus, uh, the, the first book we talked about focuses on uh, the Rockefellers and, and the uh, Federal Reserve. And in that one particularly, although he does so a bit in some others, he actually makes some connections <laughs> between the Society of Jesus and the Rockefellers. Yeah, that's inevitable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because uh, he's coming at it, mind you. He, he was uh, apparently, a, a, just by his name, you can tell he was a, a Jewish extraction somewhere along the way. He's coming at it not from any kind of, um, from, from a different background. He's not coming from any Protestant background or anything like that. 
No, he's uh, he makes these connections from a totally different vantage point, which was interesting. Absolutely. Other books I guess he has here that I'm seeing, he's got uh, The Merchants of Medicine, I think. Yeah, that one I want to read. That one, uh, is it Your Life is Their Toy? or That's another one. I don't have that one in front of me, but I know The Merchants in Medicine is from uh, a very one of his earlier books, of 1941. And then um, The Truth About the Rockefeller's Public Enemy Number 1 Study in Criminal Psychology. Um, now, I have that one. Like a I have that one, and that one focuses on Nelson Rockefeller, mm. who uh, in the early 60s, late 50s, was beginning to uh, threaten to become president. And uh, Josephson was warning about that, but he wasn't just whistling Dixie because Nelson Rockefeller did become VP in the early 70s under Ford, not by any kind of election, but after the ousting of Nixon. And then Ford selects... Well, he might as well be the president because we're talking about yeah. Ford now. You know what I mean? Well, and also, if you recall, <laughs> Rockefellers go out and apparently hire two. They were so cheap, they hired cheap assassins. Was it twice? Twice assassins pointed guns and fired point blank at Ford and the guns misfired? <laughs> oh, goodness me. So, was Squeaky Fromm was one of them. Uh, you got a link to the Mansons there. Do I ever? Do I ever? Do I? Or no. If I remember that, it, it, I think that was the one. If not, it was another member of the Manson clan. Oh. Oh. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, would not be surprised. They all seem to be connected. The more and more we study this, our history, and especially present contemporary history, <laughs> they all seem to be connected one way or the other. It doesn't matter. So. I do think Josephson was a a bit off with that book because in that book it's it's. He actually was warning that Nelson was the most dangerous of the Klan, and um, that's not the, the most dangerous. I mean, politics is never going to rule over banking, over the money people. And Nelson focused on politics. It was uh, David. David is the, the, the bankster, the lead bankster brother, Rockefeller. Yeah. That, that's the most dangerous. Well, it seems to be the case. Once again, if you folks, if you want to... Uh uh, what's the name of the book that you read about the banksters and all that again? Um, Babylonian Woe. It's, and if you, you either go to thinkorbebeaten.com uh, and listen to that, you can listen to it, the recordings I did on this show. But it's high, I highly recommend listening to Babylonian Woe if you want to understand really how the world works, the power structure, and banking. the banksters are a big part of it. They're right there on top, along with the priest class, that's, that's, that's a difficult book to understand. It's written in such an erudite fashion, and the author's the syntax was just kind of awkward. Yeah. Thank you for reading that book for us, by the way. <laughs> I think between listening to you read that book along with reading along with it, you do need to read along with it to really have any of it to sink in. But it's a very profound book. It's a very profound my main takeaway. My main takeaway from that book was that the process since ancient times, the process goes like this. You have, a, you have a civilization and you have a king. And at some point, the money people come into town. And in the ancient times, I guess they actually did ride on donkeys. 
And David Astle, the author of the Babylonian Woe, refers to them as the donkey caravaneers. <laughs> the donkey caravans of banksters would come into a civilization and make a deal with the king. They would sell themselves and their wares and their talents and tell the king, hey, you don't have to worry about the currency in your country. We'll handle all that. You know, you, you go recreate, you know, have fun. We'll, we'll wor- wonder, worry about the, the money. You know, you just, you, you, you rule the politics and the people, we'll handle the money for you. And the most kings would be foolish enough to do that. And at that point, uh, once some time went by, they would actually become, in effect, the, the real rulers of the country. Because uh, as that, centuries later, that famous quote, quotation from, what was it, the Rothschild, or the one, it was either a Rothschild or a Warburg. I think it was a Rothschild who said, uh, "Give me the, the, give me the the power to, to coin money in a country, and it doesn't matter who makes the laws." Yeah. So, so once the king was foolish enough to render the currency powers over to these donkey caravaneers, uh, he effectively he his his civilization he was really no longer in charge. And then sometimes what would happen is a king would wake up and see the threat belatedly and try to do something about it. But if he tried, then the, don- the donkey caravaneers, the banksters, the international banksters, what they would do at that point, because they had already wheedled their way into neighboring nations and controlling those, they would uh, let loan money to the neighboring nations and agitate wars and have the neighboring nations put down this rebellious king who was trying to get rid of them, who had woken up. Well, today the donkey caravaneers are represented by the dynastic clans, such as the Melons, the DuPonts, and the Rockefellers, and there are just a very few others. Those are the big three, though. Right. Very interesting. It comes to mind, it makes me think of, on a microcosm level, uh, if you think about, say, a famous musician or an actor, somebody famous who has somebody controlling their money, and then at the end of the day, they find out, well, they have no money, <laughs> and they have, and they have to, you know, and this comes along with, you know, maybe if you think about the Illuminati, as people know of it today, you know, we know it's there's connections with the Jesuits, but if you look at the, how this, how this illuminated, illuminated one system works it's uh you know they, they handle your money then they corrupt you and they make you do their bidding and um if you want to get your money back or any of it <laughs> basically in a nutshell i mean tell me if i'm right or wrong there no and once they get control of that the, the money source the money fountain that's bigot and it's it's really the whoever is the the actual government monarchy or whatever form of government it is, they're they're not really the ones running the country at that point. No. They they're beholden to the banksters. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? I just read an article on the last show, uh it's part one of uh uh Soldiers of Satan, uh Hellstorm, the uh Supreme Court and uh Wars Racket. I read an article about how the Supreme Court Justice Robert, after he sold us out this country, and the conservatives, he went over to he went over, yeah, he went over to uh, 
uh, Italy there to the Vatican, and it was knighted and knights in Malta, and that him, along with Obama and all these other folks, have huge bank accounts over there, and apparently Roberts, because of all of his machinations and his dealings with the Jesuits in Rome, has a bank account that's worth a billion dollars. This is a Supreme Court justice. So it wow. gives you an idea of how it really works. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States has always been uh, corrupt and uh, fraudulently run. The historical facts on that very assiduously documented. Uh, the book to go to for that is a Gustavus Myers book, The History of the Supreme Court of the United States. He shows you. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's up there. Basically, the, the history of the Supreme Court goes like this, in a nutshell. Uh, all of the Supreme Court justices are chosen because they were first uh, lawyers who represented, specialized in uh, powerful megacorporations. Uh, those kind of lawyers are the only ones who will ever get elected to the Supreme Court because then the powers that be know that those guys are willing to do the bidding of the, the super rich. And then once they get there, these uh, high-power corporate lawyers and become chief justices, then what they do is and it goes all the way back to the foundation of this country, all the way from John Jay till today, these chief justices. If When it comes to giving a ruling, uh, they'll go... To, Two ways. If the ruling, if a certain ruling will favor the um, the corporations, then they will find a precedent for it. They'd always try to find a precedent to if if it's going to back up the corporations. But if there's a precedent in law that goes against the corporation in the case, then they will come up with a novel interpretation. They will write new law, in effect. And they, in other words, they make it up as they go along. That's what the Supreme Court does. And that's the historical facts. Check out that book by Gustavus Myers if you doubt that. Yeah. I hear you. It's, it's, a, it's a very disturbing. Way, Gustavus Myers himself would also be in the top five historians, real historians, that this nation has ever produced. And Gustavus Myers is, uh, by mainstream historians, Gustavus Myers is, of course, ignored, uh, suppressed. They don't like talking about him. But if they do, when they seldom do reference Gustavus Myers and his work, they criticize his tone, his mean-spirited tone. However, what no one ever criticizes to this day are his facts. Yeah, it seems to be the usual... Uh the standard reactions. They can't dispute his facts. They, you know, they go after the messenger instead of the messenger's rights. Yeah, ad hominem attack. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a, a fallacy in argue, arguing. Well, while you're at it, since we brought up the, two of the top five uh, authors, what are the other three? Do you have offhand? Are you thinking? Yeah, definitely. Another one would be Anthony Sutton. You're probably familiar with him. Oh, yeah, if you want to know about the, especially the skull and bones, <laughs> go to him, right? <laughs> well, what else he does, though, 
if you uh, with con- referencing his other books, the guy was hyper vigilant about documenting facts to the point where his writing, his prose is actually very boring, but his tedious details are amazing. And various books of his, uh, he he wrote. He wrote Wall Street and the Rise of the Bolsheviks, or what was it, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. He documents, actually, that Wall Street paid for and created the Bolshevik Revolution. Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, he documents, factually, in tedious detail, how uh, Hitler was financed by Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street and FDR, same thing. Uh, In National Suicide, he documents tediously how, during the Vietnam War, the United States was shipping material, war material all over the place to communist countries who were in, and then shipping it to North Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Sutton was, he, his final, I think it was his final book was the Skull and Bones book, but he, he did much more than that to expose the banksters. Another uh, prolific author, and of course it cost him his job at uh, the Hoover Institute in uh, on the I think is it what the Stanford campus? You you if you're a historian who tells the truth, uh, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, uh, so then another three of them. Another one would be. Oh gosh, uh, let me think. I'll tell you who the uh, the fifth one. Uh, that one I remember. Uh, the fifth one that I will just barely eke in would be uh, Eustace Mullins. And I, I, I would put him the lowest at five. I would rate him high for uh, exposing the banksters and exposing the AMA, the fraud, fraudulent history of the AMA, especially in a book like Murder by Injection. Fantastic uh-huh. book. He also ex- uh, wrote a fantastic book about the, uh, the Federal Reserve and his career, his writing career, also lasted a long time. I'd put him up there. I would ding him a little bit because at the end of the day, like Tex Mars, he's a uh, a, a Jew basher. Right. And never talks about uh, yeah. Yeah. Rome and the Jesuits and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's a shame. Um, of course, the, the incredible books about exposing the Jesuits, it seems that all of their authors, many of them American, they tended to just write one book. They they didn't um, write more than that. So I, I imagine that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's why I don't actually have any of those authors in the in the top five, although if I was going to include them, I actually think their books are actually more important. They're singular books. A book such as America or Rome, Christ or the Pope by John L. Brandt a book such as you've been playing lately by Richard Thompson, uh, The Footprints of the Jesuits. Um, oh, gosh, there are some, some others and some other American ones. Uh, the book by Brigadier General Thomas Harris, uh, Rome's Responsibility in the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln, another book by Burke McCarty, uh, The Suppressed Truth About the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. All of those singular books I would actually put really far up there, maybe even more so in, in terms of importance, but the authors themselves just tended to write one book only for, you know, imagine that, huh? Yeah. Um, okay, so the, uh, who was the last guy? Let me think about this. We got Anthony Sutton, Gustavus Myers, Emmanuel Josephson, 
Eustace Mullins barely, but I think he, he might deserve to go in there. And yeah, it, um, you know what? It'll come to me. Oh yeah, I know. Um, Ferdinand Lundberg. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, he wrote a a book exposing he called the cracks in the Constitution. So kind of early on, I have to look at the date when that came out. But he uh, writes about the the flaws in the Constitution that we're not supposed to talk about. Kind of early. Uh, in uh, this is long before obviously the I Man and James Montgomery were around. But the other his magnum opus, his fan, just humongous tome, uh, the rich and the super rich. I. It, it would be well worth reading for uh, most anybody who wants to know the real power in this country. Mm. You know, it doesn't. There are some flaws with it. He doesn't be- actually believe in conspiracies per se. Yeah, right. And he doesn't go, of course, to Rome. But you want to know a book that documents who are these dynastic clans? that are in, in control it, it just as far as within the bounds of, uh, you know, in this land, it's a shame he doesn't take, make the connections to such a, you know, the Cardinal of, Cardinal of New York. Uh, he doesn't make those connections. But the, as far as exposing the dynastic clans of international banking families and the ones who sit atop the mega corporations, that is a fantastic book. And it's a huge book. It's over a thousand pages. The rich and the super rich. It's uh, it's well worth reading. And you you make some connections, some unusual connections. If you've read some of these other books, you find some things in there that even Lundberg didn't wouldn't have known that he was writing about. Right. But um, yeah, and you also find out in that book, he doesn't just go into the top three. You know, Mellon, Rockefeller, Dupont. He goes into all the others, the uh, maybe the 25 other clans beneath them that are also the super rich. They're just not quite as super rich as the the big three. And uh, he goes into you know the oil barons. He goes into those guys, the, the Texas oil barons, and he tells you where they hang out too, where they associate. Uh, there are the apparently on the eastern seaboard, especially there are these super elite private rich clubs where these uh these clans go and i guess they go and play racquetball and uh have lunch and uh, make the decisions of uh, what to tell the legislators to legislate <laughs> <laughs> and interestingly for those who say the jews did it uh interestingly he sh- show he writes how in those private clubs uh only gentiles are allowed <laughs> so okay if the jews are running things um that's odd <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I think when it comes to the the, the the Jewish connection, the Zionist connection, or whatever you want to call it, then there is one, but clearly they are not the ones running the show. There's yeah. just a front group, and then there's those who are intellectually lazy and who don't want to, you know, ask questions any further. And I guess it satisfies many people who, you know, they're we all have a racist tendency in us to be yeah. a group. <clears throat> and, and, of course, you know, they're not really... 
we can go into great detail about that, whether they're a race or not. But the fact of the matter is, <clears throat> they're the ones thrown out in front of us constantly, so that the people don't like, look look at who's actually the puppet masters of them. Yeah, it's kind of like throwing Freemasons to kick around. Yeah. It's uh, fascinating when you discover how the world really works, not only through banking, but then how the uh, the power structure and how, uh, as people ask these questions, how the, all these groups are thrown at you until you finally get to the head of the beast, which, well, as the Bible says, or, you know, it, it is Rome. Uh, that's the way it goes. So um, whether you accept it or not, that's your business, but... Uh, in reality, that's what's happening. So. <laughs> and if you want to find find a lot, a halfway decent uh, list of books about uh, Romanism and the Jesuits, go to jamesjpn.net. He's been on this show. He's been doing a good job on his own, comp- compiling these books and putting them on his website so you can find books like 30 Years in Hell or From Darkness to the Light by uh, Bernard. Uh, Frostenberg or Rulers of Evil, of course, that's Tupper Saucy, or etc. You know, there's so many books out there for people to find if they want to know the connection with the Jesuits and Rome to all of this. So, but let's go back to your topic at hand because, quite frankly, I'm, I haven't really done a lot of scholarly work on the Rockefellers and uh, their connection with. Uh, I mean, I know as an artist, being an artist myself. Uh, Real quick, Michael, about uh, one last quip about that book, The Rich and the Super Rich. A few years back, I had a, a listener of my, a, a guy who listened to me uh, out of Georgia named Eric. I think that, pretty sure he was the one, he sent me that book in the mail. Ah. And I, I took a look at it. It was so gigantic. And I said, oh, man. When am I going to get to this? And I'm sure it doesn't expose you know that much. So I put it up on the shelf for at least a year, maybe two years, I forget. And then finally, uh, I gave it a shot. I, uh, some situations in my life uh, were such that I had a little bit of extra time and I, at that time, and I, I gave it a shot. And as soon as I opened it, whoa, this is fascinating. So that huge book was well worth reading. Oh, I believe that. You know, I, I'm starting, I was thinking about this last night. You know, we're talking about books, and, and I was thinking about the Internet and YouTube and Facebook and what is the great value for, you know, of course, we know what the government's, their value in all this and what's Rome and what they're using it for. But for, you know, the average Joe, what's the greatest value? I really do think personally, this is my own opinion, is it gives you an opportunity to find out or to think of what direction to go. And then you finally get to a point, well, you're going to have to read some books. So it's it's more of a way of uh, the greatest value I see about the Internet, that is, is that any shows like this, is just what we're talking about now, saying, hey, listen, this is these books. Go spend your time reading them. We've yeah. given you a direction now where to go to research to know the truth. But that's where this greatest value is, is a direction. You give a person direction where to go if you really yeah, are it, interested to know the truth. But you, 90% of it is garbage out there, and it's true. That's the reality of the Internet and YouTube and all that. 
But once you find a direction to go, then you go, okay, well, now I've got to find people who have done some research, who have been reading some books, and then, uh, God, I, I, then I need to do my own due diligence and start reading these articles, the books, and that, and, and come to the realization of what's really going on. So. And I got asked this one time uh, when I was talking about uh, that book, The Rich and the Super Rich. I got asked, okay, so the super rich, I get that, who those guys are now. Who are the rich then? You know, and I said, oh, yeah, Lundberg writes about that too. Okay, so the super rich are the elite dynasties, the, the dynastic clans that sit atop the banks and the mega corporations. And so the rich are people like uh, politicians and CEOs who do the bidding of the super rich. And Lundberg calls the uh, the rich, the politicians, and the uh, CEOs, he calls them the gatekeepers for the super rich. In other words, they're out there taking the flack, uh, you know, receiving the abuse of the people who halfway get it and start yelling at politicians and CEOs as, as though they were the ultimate source of the problem. But And so the reason that the CEOs... People wonder why do CEOs make so much? Lundberg writes about this. It's because it's, it's basically hush money. It, they're out there. They're gatekeepers. They know the secrets. They've got the keys to the, the real power atop them, but they have to remain quiet about that. They can't talk about the Rockefellers and all of these other dynastic clans. They have to pretend like they're the real ones in power and receive the abuse. Um, and so they're, they're, they're the, uh, the figureheads, the very well-paid figureheads, these politicians and uh, CEOs. Yeah, totally. So those, are the, those are the rich. And, of course, they can be removed at any time. The super rich, you can't get rid of those guys. No. I mean, that's how the power structure has to work. Any, any organization that's going to maintain itself or over several thousand years has to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, well, you, you mentioned how you use the internet to find some books to read. And it was, as I mentioned, listening to the informer when he referenced Emmanuel Josephson that made me go down this road and discover this historian. Right. Once you find some, uh, voices that you uh, feel confident that they're not misleading you going down the wrong wrong direction, then go there from there and to verify, you know, what they're saying, you know, so that's, that's all our responsibility, you know, turn off that darn television and turn off all the distractions and start using what God gave you, gave you a brain. And you don't have to be brilliant. I mean, I'm a fine example of it. So you don't have to be brilliant. <laughs> you just have Actually, to. What, what I've found personally is that the few people you encounter who are truly brilliant, they have, have a genius IQ, they're unteachable. They, they think they've got it so down and they're so hyper-educated that when you present them with facts, even though they're facts, but if they're facts that don't fit what they've been programmed in their education, then they more easily dismiss it than a person with a lesser IQ. It's, there, it's, there's an intellectual haughtiness that actually makes them 
unteachable, ironically. Arrogance, yes. Yes. Uh, it seems to be the case. Um, and, you know, I think there's the connection with God, too, in the spirit of God, I believe, and in just having kind of a, a humble heart and a humble mind and realizing, you finally realize you don't know anything. It's, you become much more teachable. You know what I mean? You finally realize, you know, everything I learned in my church and in public school and in college and in university and on the television has, uh, well, the majority of it has been disinformation and misinformation, and I have to go figure it out for myself. i got to find people who have walked before me and this the journey of uh, figuring out what the heck's really going on, you know. And uh, completely different than what you find in all these mystery schools and all these societies where you think that you have... Uh, come to a realization through their their uh you know their learning their teaching <laughs> it really is it is it is a journey that is uh it's solo you're gonna have to do it on your own um if you really want to come to grips with your reality because everyone around you um is clueless walking around like bo- i call them bobbleheads or if you'll see in uh, the EU their poster of uh, everyone walking around in square heads, block heads, that's pretty much what's happened to us. We cannot, we have lost our humanity and lost our intelligence, you know, our, our perspective of what the world really is through false teachings of others. And most of them, by the way, it seems to be that they have done it out of good intentions and meaningfully doing it with what they think is the right thing and teaching you a whole bunch of falsehoods. <laughs> you have to get to the point of challenging everything. So, and yet we, and yet we have these few historians who are telling the truth in the minority, uh, and their stuff is still there. It's not being published anymore. You can track it down. Uh, it's just so suppressed, so ignored. But the the the, the truth is out there, and Emmanuel Josephson was uh, one of those truth tellers. Yeah. This this book here, again, from 1952, Rockefeller Internationalist, The Man Who Misrules the World. Uh, every different chapter seems to focus on, or at least most of them, seems to focus on a different part of our civilization that the Rockefellers have attained a monopoly over. There's a chapter, yeah, there's a chapter or two on how the Rockefellers attained a monopoly over education, Obviously, over banking, too. There's a chapter over that. Uh, a chapter over politics and the government. Um, How about religion? Is there one about religion? Oh, yeah. There's one on religion. Yeah, the, what is it? The World Council on Religion. Sure, yeah. And there's a chapter on the... Well, actually, it's a focus throughout the book on uh, the bogus philanthropies through the, 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 the foundations the tax-exempt foundations that the Rockefellers set up. And he, uh, Josephson is always careful to put uh, philanthropy in quote quotation marks throughout the book, <laughs> rightfully so. Uh, the, the chapter that I want to focus on for the rest of this show is chapter six, and that is how uh, the, the Rockefellers attained control over mainstream medicine. This is something that I'm very interested in hearing about because, as you know, and people who listen to the show, I'm dealing with 
multiple sclerosis with a diagnosis. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, a couple times now to you that I'm totally convinced that it's a designer disease and that it either came from the vaccines I received as a child or when I went on a, a Mormon mission to England, the vaccines and the shots I received. Because both, you know, that's how I see it. Why me? Why me in particular? Why so many males in their 40s are ending up with this disease in the United States? Go ahead, please share, us, share with us what you have discovered. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, the is it the primogenitor? Would that be the the word? The the founder of what we we know now as the the Rockefeller dynastic clan today, William Doc. I think Avery Rockefeller, I think it was, and I could track it down in here. Um, but Doc Rockefeller, he, uh, in the Midwest, and I think it was in Ohio, but he, he did travel around a bit. He was basically a, uh, a snake oil salesman in the late 1800s. And he was a, a, some other things, too. I think he was a, a convicted rapist, too. But uh, he was a, a peddler of bogus patent medicines <laughs> and kind of like the character you see in the movie little big man the character warren oates played uh and so a few decades later when his descendants uh john rockefeller jr uh began to take over the field of mainstream medicine it actually was kind of a family tradition to be dabbling in that field. So, oh, and then, of course, okay, another field, of course, a chapter here is the Rockefeller control of the oil industry. Can't leave that one out. But they typically, they actually brought oil, they, they used to market oil, I'm sure they still do in some cases, market oil uh, medicinally uh, for a, like a relief for constipation and uh, look on the internet under images, you can see some old uh, posters, some advertisements marketing uh, what they call rock oil for use in constipation and some other things. And um, Josephson writes about that specifically, that um, that caused some uh, some serious medical problems for people, as you can imagine. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, in I guess a lot of people aren't aware of this. I'm only aware of it uh, through a local nature of path. I stumbled on a book that he had on his shelf, and I went out and bought the book and read it myself. But uh, a book called, I think it's Nature Cures, and the author starts with a W, Wharton maybe. I know the book's called Nature Cures, and it is a history of American uh, medi medicine the various branches of American medicine in the 1800s. And we like to think today how advanced we are and um, how we, you know, we've got it all together today and how in say in the 1800s, I mean, my gosh, they, they were so primitive back then medicinally. And you know what? The 1800s, you read that book, nature cures, you find out historically the 1800s were the golden age of liberty uh, in terms of, of uh, medicine, because you had competing branches 
competing fields of medicine and the consumer was able to choose instead of the monopoly that we have today uh, with the, the, the allopath, allopathy, the, the MD school. In the 1800s, you had homeopathy, you had naturopathy, you had uh, chiropractic, you had, um, what is it, uh, hygiotherapy, hydrotherapy, uh, just a bunch of them. And towards the end, they started competing, obviously, economically, towards the end of the 1800s. Things started heating up. There was a competition. And right about in early 1900s, right at the turn of the century, the Rockefellers got involved. And the Rockefellers, especially with their bogus philanthropies, once that those were set up, they were able to use that money and throw it into the camp that they wanted to take over, and that is the, the allopathic camp. Not that the MDs that we're referring to, the AMA, they don't like being called allopaths. That's what the other schools call them. It's a worthy name. and uh, it, you, it's Mainstream medicine, we might call it today, or MDs. That's the camp that won out, the camp that endorses basically uh, cutting, burning, or poisoning you know, surgeries, drugs, that kind of stuff. The Rockefellers threw their money at that camp and backed that one. And, you know, I suppose wisely so, because they saw that that one, not because it was the best medical school, not far from it, was actually in the most dangerous in many ways uh, with the, the drugs that uh, killed many, many people and continue to. But the fact that they pushed drugs and surgeries, that was glaringly, the, the school of medicine that held the most profit, the, 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 drug, the drugs and the surgery. So the Rockefellers did that, and they, there was an agent of theirs, a very high-ranking agent. He became a close confidant, business associate of, the Rocke, of uh, John D. Rockefeller. The man's name was Frederick Taylor Gates. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he is a, uh, a prominent player in the formation of the Rockefeller dynasty. He came from, I think, uh, Minnesota, and he was a, uh, a reverend. In other words, he was a hireling shepherd. He was an incorporated licensed pastor of a, a church in uh, Minnesota, and his father was a, uh, a, a poor country parson, I think a Baptist part, pastor, and he grew up resenting the semi-poverty of, of his father's humble country parsonage life, and so uh, he didn't know any better to what to do with his life, Frederick Taylor Gates, so he did attend a theological school, seminary, <laughs> and when he came out, though, he... Uh, he was he he did head up a church in Minnesota, but it quickly became apparent that his real skills lay in accruing money in fundraising for the church. He apparently was really good at uh, getting uh, rich people about to die to uh, donate to the church so he could uh, begin projects building up the church, and at some point. Uh, I actually forget how I could look it up, but he he was discovered by the Rockefellers 
I, yeah, that's probably in a previous chapter. But he began working for the Rockefellers, and very early on, uh, the John D. Rockefeller uh, sent Gates out on to um, to uh, was it Gates had to go on some semi missionary trip, and uh, John D. Rockefeller told him, "Hey, I, I I'm thinking about buying a, a mine out there. Can you go? You know, just scope it out for me. Check it out and see if you think it's worthy of uh, my of." my uh, funding it as a project. And so Gates came back and gave a thoroughly very detailed and very business-like report on why Rockefeller shouldn't, why it was a waste of money. And then uh, later on, Gates was able to uh, give a report on a different project, which was worth Rockefeller money, and Rockefeller did fund that. So Rockefeller recognized that Gates himself was a, a financial genius. And so he convinced Gates to uh, give up the, the religious life, which didn't take too much convincing. Right. And, and Gates, Frederick T. Gates, helped the Rockefellers to gain control of medicine. Uh, he also, by the way, helped... now. It's actually strange because Gates himself did not have any medical connection. Oh, I, I'll, give, I'll give you that in a moment. Um, I, I, on the different chapter, though, in here about uh, Rockefeller control of religion, as you can imagine, uh, it was Gates who very much greased the wheels and helped the Rockefellers control institutional religion. You can imagine with Gates's religious, formal religious background, he was a, a worthy agent in that, and yes, he certainly was. However, Gates also helped them take over medicine. Uh, here's the story here on page 103. Gates, in his pastorate in Minneapolis, there were some homeopathic physicians in his parish, parish who were, oh, okay, unaware of the allopathic medical training his father had received. So Gates's father did have some allopathic medical training. All right, I had forgotten that. Uh, and the, so they appealed to Pastor Gates for his support and had, wanted him to read Hahnemann's Organon, and um, that's the, the leading homeopath. And I think that's kind of like the Bible of homeopathy. And as a uh, someone who trusted allopathy and his father was kind of trained in that, apparently, uh, Gates uh, balked at that, and he went the other way, and he decided he wanted to help push allopathy, and at some point he got hooked up with the Rockefellers after that. Hmm. It says, Gates' imagination was fired by the discoveries of Pasteur and Koch, and K-O-C-H, and the institutes established in their names, and by the, and, of course, by the profits accruing from the sale of their antitoxins and serum. And, uh, by, by the way, Pasteur and Koch, especially Pasteur, those men were frauds. Uh, read the book, the, uh, the Dream and the Lie of Louis Pasteur by R.B. Pearson, if you want to know the truth about Pasteur. Mm. Uh, but look at this. L listen to this quote, quotation about Gates. Uh, the, by the profits accruing from the sale of antitoxins and sera, serums, 
He also discerned the large profits derived directly and indirectly from medical schools. Here was a field closest to the hearts and purses of all men. For the desperately ill are generally willing to spend all that they have to recover their health, which for them is the most precious of all things. Gates was shrewd and hard enough to realize that the domination of medicine would inevitably prove profitable in many directions, but he was also cunning enough to invest his purposes with the sham cloak of philanthropy. Now what you have here, Michael, uh, in Emmanuel Josephson, is an M- a trained MD himself. He was a doctor. He was apparently a doctor for whom the brainwashing didn't take. Kind of like the protagonist in the novel 1984, Winston Smith. And kind of like a few couple of generations later, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of this doctor, but a doctor named, uh, I think it was Robert, Robert Mendelssohn. He wrote a book about how, how to raise a healthy child in spite of your pediatrician, and he wrote some others. He was another trained trained MD who called out the uh, allopathy and 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 the AMA for uh, practicing uh, bogus medicines and and just uh, going after the profits. Uh, okay, so then you have okay this then he there is also some history of the foundation of the American Medical Association, the AMA by two uh, charlatans, Doc George Simmons, you know, Doc is in quotes, and then Doc in quotes, uh, Morris Fishbein. The two, this, this is also covered by Eustace Mullins in uh, Murder by Injection. But the foundation of the AMA is uh, steeped in fraud. <laughs> Deep, dark, very corrupt fraud, the AMA. And that is your mainstream medicine foundation today. Uh, but uh, Josephson links that, that that fraudulent foundation of the AMA with Rockefeller Control. There was a Rush Medical School, which was a diploma mill, where Doc Simmons got his first bog- belatedly got his first bogus uh, MD degree through the mail. And Rush Medical School later became the medical department of Rockefeller's University of Chicago. And Doc Simmons was a fit partner for the Gates-Rockefeller Combine. He welcomed their cooperation in gaining monopolistic control of medicine, which was also one of the prime objects of his AMA. So there were, uh, I guess, two fronts, two spearheads uh, with this uh, takeover of medicine by way of the Rockefellers. First, they, they gained control of the pharmaceuticals. Uh, and I think even before that, they gained, first they gained control of the, uh, the medical research facilities. Uh, any institution that specialized in medical research, they bought up. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, through merging and through um, hostile takeovers, they controlled... The, uh, the medical research. And then once they come up with very, more and more and more drugs through uh, the medical research, 
they 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 built up the uh, today the drug trust and Rockefeller I'm sorry Josephson calls it the drug trust and they also controlled the uh, the press the the journal of what is it the journal of the American Medical Association that was actually especially controlled by Doc Simmons himself at first and they all worked together to it's 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 like a, a sick symbiotic relationship because first of all with the medical research they're only just they're only after drugs really the creation of new drugs for treatment not for cures and it's for profit they want people to stay on these drugs not be cured they want people to stay on them and need them and it, it and it so they can maintain their profits and and they they charge the most they possibly can for these drugs. And part okay, there, one reason they can charge so much for these drugs, these exorbitant profit uh, price markups for these uh, patent medicine drugs, uh, is because they they use the advertising in journals like the the Journal of the AMA. They pump up these drugs. They they hype them because they also control the, these ads. And the Rockefellers also gained control of the regulatory agencies, even the FDA itself. They, they gained control of that, and once they did, uh, they, they could play, the, play them off each other. For example, one way they could mark up their drugs in addition to ballyhooing them in the, the, the medical journals is while they were pumping the advertising for these drugs about to come out, they themselves, controlling the FDA, would have the FDA re- hold off on on uh, giving their endorsement of the drug, of the new drug coming out. Saying, ah, we're not sure about this. And so that would make people want it more. It would build up this fervor in people because it's like, kind of like creating a scarcity. Like, oh my gosh, the FDA won't give approval? And meanwhile, the, the journal of the AMA is telling us what a wonderful drug this would be if they just would give it, it let it loose to the public. We'll pay anything. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's a sick, symbiotic thing they would use because they got control over everything. And another thing you found, you, you read, Josephson exposes, is within these institutions, of medical research themselves, you would have groupthink. In other words, you found this with Pasteur also. Uh, these institutions, they're, they're set up, you know, if you look at a, mankind's history, real discoveries, real meaningful leaps uh, in any field have always been by individuals you know maverick individuals doing their own thing not going with the group what you have with these research institutions once the rockefellers gained control of them is you would have groupthink everybody had to think the same and if it if and and there also would be only money thrown at it if there was going to be a greater profit to be to be seen uh, but if say if somebody was working within some 
Josephson acknowledges that once in a while you would have an individual working with the within a Rockefeller institution of, of medicine who discovered something, uh, but if it was foreseen that there wasn't much profit in that, they would quell that discovery. Mm-hmm. Now, if it was seen that it was a new drug, for example, that would uh, create some a bunch of profit in a few years for, for the Rockefellers, then that individual typically wouldn't even be given credit. The, uh, the group itself would be given credit or whoever the big muckety-muck in charge of that research group would be given credit, say like a Jonas Salk or a, or a Sabin, you know, who obviously had many scientists working under them. Not that those guys were right because those guys pushed vaccination. Sure. But, but that's what you have. And actually, I'm to think of it, didn't um, the inventor Thomas Edison do that too? He had a bunch of hirelings working under him, and then if they came up with something good, he took credit for it. That's 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 what I've heard in you. Yes, I've heard the same thing. So seems to be status quo. That's how they go about doing it. So well, it's so, well, go ahead. any in, any independent. There was a stranglehold slowly in any independent uh, medical research institution that didn't go along with the Rockefellers. That would independent of them. Uh, they were choked off financially. They were uh, they would never be given quote unquote philanthropic funds from the the the, the dynastic tax exempt foundations. Hmm. And get this, because the Rockefellers gained control of the FDA and the other regulatory agencies, anything that the independent medical research facilities came up with that they wanted to market, even things that were not dangerous at all, but actually helpful, the FDA, because it was controlled by the Rockefellers, they would make it incredibly hard for these independent agencies to get anything okayed. They, they would uh, become very anal retentive about labeling and anything else they could to slow down, to stonewall any new products uh, from these independent research labs. But boy, if it was from a, a Rockefeller lab, even if it was a drug that had killed dozens of people already, they would it would they just put a rubber stamp on it. And there are uh, a, a number of very specific historical examples of, uh, of that that J- Josephson writes about. And this was a doctor. Jos- in Josephson, you have a, a very knowledgeable doctor who Again, the brainwashing that doctors go under, AMA doctors, didn't take with him. And he exposes from the 30s, 40s, and 50s some of these very specific cases of very specific drugs that killed people, sometimes dozens of people, and were hushed up uh, so that the profit could continue for the drug trust and the AMA. Quite tragic, actually. It's and so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna. What you're talking about, you know, if you, uh, I'm gonna read a little quote here. You can find it on BibleBelievers.org, whatever it's worth. But it's uh, what Ezra Pound demanded once in a, his famous radio broadcast. Quote: Health. Damn it. End of quote. America became the greatest 
and the most productive nation in the world because we had the healthiest citizens in the world. When Rockefeller Syndicate began his takeover of our medical profession, and he says 1910, I don't know if that's the exact date or not. Sounds like it was even before that, really. <laughs> but our that sounds citizens, right. It sounds right to you? Okay. Yeah. Our citizens went into a sharp decline. Today we suffer from a host of debilitating ailments, both mental and physical, nearly all of which can be traced directly to the operations of the chemical and drug monopoly, which pose the greatest threat to our continued existence as a nation. This is why it's so important to talk about this this topic, folks. United now to restore our national health, the result will be the restoration of our national pride and the resumption of our role as inventors and producers in the modern world the custodians of the world's hope and dreams of liberty and freedom. Of course, that's a little bit of rhetoric there, but the thing is, um, I look at myself. I got multiple sclerosis. That's the diagnosis. I tried for two and a half years through nutrition to make a difference in my life, and I started to make a difference. And actually, it was a t- you know, almost becoming a, a poster boy for nutrition and healing uh MS, even on, even on a show about it, uh, because I, you know things really did reverse and change. But then I, ended up hit, but, but I ended up getting hit with um, the shingles, and I've been downhill ever since. And the truth of the matter is, at this point, I'm so dependent on their medication just to exist. And You're I look at this, yeah, and I just look at what happened. How did this happen? How's the nutrition? How's one of these other things didn't work? And I really believe that they gave me a designer drug, a designer disease, excuse me. Well, have you, Michael, have you read any of the, um, any books uh, from the anti-vaccination scholars? I haven't read any books, but I know enough from, you know, putting the pieces together and from the little articles I have read that there's a strong connection. So, yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Is, uh, I, I, it has been shown among many other dangerous things that vaccinations do, that uh, it they can attack the uh, the myelin sheath they call it that surrounds the nerves themselves. They erode the the, the protective covering around the nerves. Hey, hey uh, AKA multiple sclerosis. <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah. what MS is, right? Is it just the t- yeah. deterioration uh, or having plaque? On your myelin sheet, you know. So. All right. Yeah, you're you're familiar, all right. So, and but you know, okay. Go ahead. So what you just read, Michael, from Ezra Pound, that goes. That corresponds with the maybe the major theme, maybe the major theme running through Emmanuel Josephson's work about the Rockefellers. It also corresponds with it. Similarly, a major theme from that book, The Rich and the Super Rich, uh, not just about the Rockefellers, but about the, the dynastic clans in general and, and uh, rich, white, super white-collar crime. Uh, and that, that theme is this. When you're talking about crimes committed, the super rich, uh, rich people, are capable of such exponentially greater crime. Not only capable, they do it all the time. 
they're, they're capable, they commit such gr- incredibly greater crimes to such that, that is so much more widespread in, in its, its perniciousness to, to a nation, to a civilization. And yet, they get off scot-free. They get off with a, a hand slap at, at worst. Whereas, you take a poor person who robs a bank or robs a jewelry store or robs a, a, a convenience store, and they throw the book at them. However, the real super crime, that's just winked at in our society, and it's done every day. Mm. Because these crimes that are committed by the super rich, they don't just affect the local 7-Eleven. They don't just affect uh, the, 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 the local convenience. No, they affect an entire nation. And one thing Josephson writes about is how the, the Rockefellers, what they did to impede the United States' development of synthetic rubber and obtaining uh, rubber sources prior to World War II, seriously impeded uh, the, 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 uh, the U.S. readiness for World War II. I mean, that, and that's just one thing among many. We're talking about what, they, what they've done to medicine. They've, you're looking at these vaccinations and these drugs have killed countless scores of people. And this, of course, goes back to Pasteur. <laughs> uh, Pasteur, yeah, what a con artist he was, wasn't he? Take now, just, can I, can I, I'll read you one paragraph here, you could, you just to show, to show people that Josephson goes into kind of minute detail. I mean, he was there on the spot, and these are details which I don't think most anybody would know about. But this is kind of par for the course. And uh, of if, if, if today the alternative schools of medicine, which weren't as lucrative as uh, allopathy and so were, uh, have always been uh, impeded, have, have been um, obstructed, oppressed by the AMA and by the Rockefellers, typically the cures that alternative medicine comes up with, the restorative cures, they, they're not dangerous and they're cheap. Mm-hmm. And they, that's not what the Rockefellers want. What they want is uh, not just not cures, they want treatments that don't cure, but pro, you know, make you feel better a little bit, um, uh, but keep you dependent on the drug. And if you develop side effects, then you need other drugs and it just becomes more and more. They want to keep you alive, but they want to keep you sick and on their drugs. But listen to this. Uh, thus, This is page 108 and 109. Uh, Thus, one of the most important medical discoveries of the past two decades has been the discovery of a method of successfully treating with small doses of a cheap mineral, manganese, uh, myasthenia gravis. The disease without the treatment is hopelessly fatal. The discovery has been completely barred from mention in medical literature and has been barred from use to save the lives of the victims in institutions and hospitals of the country by the conspirators. This is done primarily for political purposes, but it also serves to protect the investment of the drug firm of Hoffman LaRoche, 
one of the licensees of the Rockefeller-controlled German Drug Trust in the drug Prostigmine, a costly drug which sometimes gives temporary relief to the victims in the early stages of the disease, but hastens their death in the later stages. Medical literature permits the mention of Prostigmine only in a favorably endorsed light in the treatment of myasthenia gravis and has established this finally lethal drug as quote-unquote accepted practice in the disease. Any mention of the cheap but effective manganese in the treatment of myasthenia gravis is barred in medical or popular literature despite the fact that the disease is growing more widespread. The newspapers report tragically needless deaths from it with increasing regularity, though there is no reason for death from the disease in the present state of medical knowledge. And it reminds me uh, of the cancer epidemic today. Hell yeah. It is pretty quite tragic. It, you know, it's... It just got, it, what comes to mind, first of all, is that the Inquisition is still on, folks, and we're all under it. <laughs> and that if we look at this Roman Empire that we live under, and, and we look at, even going back a couple thousand years, this has still been the same old thing. You know, we are slaves to this system. And they have, in their minds, a right to do whatever they want to us. And uh, I look at what Bex means. Whatever happened to me and, and other folks like me, clearly they gave us a ticking time bomb which was just waiting to happen. And they knew this. With the hope of, you know, profiteering off us, of our sickness. That's just one element of it all. But I think the other thing is, too, is to just put us under complete and utter slave enslavement. One of the best ways you can enslave a person is by weakening them. You know what I mean? Um, make them sick. Sure. <laughs> you can't fight back. You can't resist. You you become dependent on their drugs. So. Yep. Hey, you know, another thing he does here, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, he does this from time to time in all of his books. I think especially as he was writing his later ones and he discovered more. But Josephson makes connections between uh, Knight of Malta and uh, Jesuit connections with the Rockefellers. Oh, yeah. On page, what, yep. Rock, on page, Rock, one, what, one, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say Knight of Malta. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but here on page 115, 114, 115, he makes a connection between, uh, let's see, I.G. Farben in the U.S. Uh, the legal representatives of I.G. Farben in the U.S. are Rockefeller's attorneys. One firm is Sullivan and Cromwell, which is headed by, get this, he doesn't explain this, maybe he does in some other book, or maybe later in this book, kinsman, he's calling this guy a kinsman of the Rockefellers, John Foster Dulles, Dulles, uh, who is trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. And, And then also later on, same paragraph, it numbers... It also numbers among its partners John J. McCloy, trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation. Now, McCloy and Dulles and Rockefeller all together. 
And of course, <laughs> Eric, Eric Phelps made the connection with, uh, not a, of course, Dell is, but also McCloy with the uh, JFK assassination, I remember. I think McCloy had something to do with the FBI by that time, perhaps. Unless, I, I know he was referenced in some capacity. It's, it's but it's just, all it's, useful aspects. It all goes to show you that you know, it all, lead, all roads lead to Rome, eventually. <laughs> they really do. I mean, yeah. And and uh, I, not only you know you got to be a banker, be uh, you know part of these uh, rich elite clans, but what maintains them ultimately? I get the impression. I know it's a simplistic way of looking at it, but it, you know the Word of God says that the dragon gives it his power, and if you look at Rome and you look at the the wizards, if you will, the sorcerers, the priest class, the papacy, and their connection to it all. And how, if you're not going to do anything, you're not going to be anybody in the big picture unless you are part of the system. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Muslim, whatever, Christian, Protestant, Catholic, if you're not in the hierarchy of this Roman Empire, you will not go far. And then they seem to choose the uh, men without scruples, morals, and to do their bidding. And it seems to be the same story over and over again. It doesn't matter. It could be the monarchies. It could be, you know, for the past 2,000 years, these rich ruling elites like the Rockets, Rockefellers, you know, um, and they just unleash their hell on us. And they, <laughs> I don't know. It's really heartbreaking to think about it because it's basically all the people that we were told to idolize, emulize, or think how great they are. You know, I think about this documentary that they had about the Rockefellers, that bogus propaganda about how they rose from poor beginnings from Ohio, you know, and they needed to become this great dynasty. I mean, did it really happen that way? Heck no. <laughs> Go, ahead. Go ahead. What are you going to say? No, they they uh, broke laws right and left from the get-go. But with the uh, pretty pretty soon from the get-go, for, with the the profits they they were gaining, they just started buying off the authorities who would do anything about their breaking the laws. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's just organized crime has been a huge element in the world and in this country in particular. Seems to be. It has to be, you have to have a criminal mind to even get to it at any point. I think it's kind of great authority you know, in this country. So if you want to make a lot of money, then you have to sacrifice your soul. I mean, if it was a, uh, the scriptures say, what well, profits man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul. That's what it's all about. Yeah. So. And they were smart enough to uh, embrace propaganda, especially through their their so-called uh, philanthropy work, their their bogus tax-exempt foundations. It's very clear, oh, ridiculously clear. Josephson shows how um, they were sh- very shrewd about that. They, the the foundations they they were just set up not only to save the Rockefellers' tax money, but also they could use money that accrues there to 
to to buy all of these endeavors in life, all of these uh, institutions up, and they could buy the press. They could uh, they they could call it philanthropy work and send money, they, giving to uh, philanthropically, giving to charity. Uh, but that was just a token show to the press, which they already covered. And um, they, they could write good press about themselves. When those foundations were really set up to uh, help facilitate taking control over the nation to, and to enrich themselves, right. there's nothing philanthropical about them. No. Or very, very little. It makes me think about, uh, you know, as a kid growing up and, Watching PBS, beginning of every show, they mention all these these organizations that you're talking about. They basically were robbing us, lying to us, stealing from us, poisoning us, killing us, putting us in wars. Oh well, yeah, that's um, those. Yeah, I I know what you mean. When you watch, I used to watch PBS as a boy, and uh, you would see at the beginning or ending of of shows on there, uh, all these announcements of which tax-exempt foundation gave money for that show. And again, referring to that book, The Rich and the Super Rich by Ferdinand Lundberg, when I was reading that book of his, I kept coming across all of these names that I used to encounter when watching PBS, like and, and these, remember, I said there's you got the three, the three super super elite uh, dynastic clans: the Rockefellers, Duponts, and Mellons. Then under kind of underneath them, you got say maybe 25 or so who are almost up to their speed, but also were super rich and are qualified as dynastic clans that run the country. Uh, Ferdinand Lundberg goes into the careers of those clans, how they got started. And say, for example, I, when watching PBS, I used to hear uh, the Russell Sage Foundation gave money to this and that. Well, Ferdinand Lundberg tells you about the career, the corrupt career of Russell Sage. And a bunch of the others, think of um, any of the other foundations you would hear about on PBS, these uh, super rich luminaries who begat them. Uh, Ferdinand Lundberg would probably have written about those and tell you what they were, what the progenitors of that foundation, what they, what that man was really like, and what kind of laws he really did break. <laughs> Which is really fascinating because you know you hear you heard all your life that PBS is run by a bunch of liberals. Obviously, that's not the case. The case is that all these ruling elite were using this as a propaganda machine. Well, yeah, they push liberalism. They they push Marxism. And not only that, but also, like you were saying, too, this propaganda machine called the PBS to make them look like they're enlightened, good, well-intending people and that they're out there to try to educate us on what the truth is when really what they are doing is they're dictating history for us, our present-day history. Yep. Um, and um, and making themselves out to look like other than what they really are. So I have a question for you from your research about these, these, these ruling elite, the Rockefellers and their involvement, because it just goes, it's so deep, it, it, their, their machinations. 
what's the ultimate goal? And I would say, is, you know, one is uh, there's a certain point when profiteering becomes no longer profiteering. When you control so much, what's the next step? Have you ever thought about that? We, who's, 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 who's manipulating them? Who, what are they? There's, there's certain to be, they need a higher, it seems to be like they need, doesn't a man need like a higher purpose? Once you have everything and you can control just about everybody and you can just have anything you want, where do you go next? I mean, I know that you and I are not men like this. We're not in that position. So all we can do is kind of speculate. But what do you think? What, what is their motive? Beyond profiteering. Reed, I, I so often go back to this because the insight of this man was so profound. And plus, I think he had some insider knowledge that he got somewhere along the way late, later in, late in his life. But read the novel 1984 by George Orwell. Especially read the, the third and final parts in that book. The interrogation scenes between Winston Smith when he was in was it the the Ministry of uh, the Ministry of Love, which was really the Ministry <laughs> of of Torture. Isn't that interesting? That's what we're hearing all the time now uh, with all these false flag operations and these people that are saying it's love, it's love, it's all about love. Isn't that interesting? You bring that up. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, I never made that connection. That's right. Yeah, uh, but when Winston wants to know, or no, he had written in his diary that he wasn't supposed to keep a course. Uh, he, he said he, under, he wrote that, I, I understand the how, you know, how Big Brother's doing it, how, how the, the inner party is manipulating things. I understand the how, but I don't understand the why. And his chief interrogator, O'Brien, explains it to him. And he says, you wrote this, and now I'll tell you what it is. It's power. It, and that's it, period. It's the pursuit of power. Not power connected to anything, not, not power because of this and that, just power. To have ultimate, total power. And that's what it is. You look at the uh, biography, or what is it? I think it might even be an autobiography of... Uh, David Rockefeller, and he admits in there, there's a quotation in there where I'm going to have to paraphrase it. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, David Rockefeller writes in his memoirs, he says, uh, we've, some people have accused us of, of being a, in a cabal to, to uh, overthrow the United States and establish a, a, a global government. And, 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 uh, I admit that, and I'm proud of it. He, he basically, it's a clumsy paraphrase, but he admits that in his autobiography, that he wants a global government where a man like him and, and a few of his cronies are going, they want control over it all, the entire world. It, it never stops. After they got, get the world, what are they going to go after the universe if they if they think they can? <laughs> well, you, well you, I mean, when I think of it, I think of how exhausting it must be. I mean, it's exhausting just living a day to day life, let alone wanting to control it all. I mean, what possesses a man? I mean, it also makes me think about the Word of God in the Bible and what. 
are these are these men demon possessed? Are these men? Well, now we can only speculate. Yeah, you know that's what I'm saying. I I, I can't understand their thinking. I don't. I try to, and I don't even understand this power. What is power? It's a very good question. I think Jeff, really, what is power? I mean, it almost seems like they're enslaved in an insanity, a madness themselves, and they really they've lost power. Well, unfortunately, Orwell, according to Orwell in the novel 1984, through his character O'Brien, he explains that as well. What is power? And uh, he asks Winston Smith that. And Winston Smith does get that. He guesses it correctly. He says power is making others suffer. Being able to make others suffer. That's power. It's madness. And it says something a lot about humanity. I mean, like, uh, thinking about the the, the uh, documentary that I uh, played the audio of it last night on the last recording of uh, Hellstorm, and although it's pro-Nazi, pro-German kind of bent to it, but it still speaks uh, very loudly of what people were going through in Germany and in uh, uh, Eastern Europe and um, Asia, and the madness that average everyday man was willing to do in raping five-year-old girls and boys and killing women and men and old people and just suffering and all that, and how so many were willing to comply to it. And um, I, I have a hard time understanding it. The only thing I can come to is that the only difference between a man who's not willing to do that and a man who is is the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of Christ. Something changes you where you're no longer willing to be a participant in the madness that is this world. And it makes you think, because, you know, it's not, you know, you, you can say, well, we can talk a lot about, we should talk about the Rockefellers and the Carnegie's and all these other really wealthy, powerful men, but we also need to look at ourselves and all this. Because in the end of the day, whether knowingly or unknowingly, we have all been, until we wake up to it, compliant to this whole insanity. And um, I just the more and more I study stuff, the more I realize that <laughs> without the spirit of Christ in you, I hate to sound so religious, but uh, and I never was, and I don't think it's even being religious. I think it's just an absolute reality. Without the spirit of Christ in you, you will participate in this madness one way or the other. And they know this. And they get a kick out of this and directing it. Uh, when you talk about power again, let's look at World War II or this new war that they're creating and how they're manipulating the masses to basically rob and steal and rape and pillage each other and... <laughs> And in the end, uh, they're the you know sure they profiteer the most from it, but it must be uh, just a gross like they get off on it. You know what I mean? A perversion. Well, you know, just the more and more we see other people suffer, the more wow. You know, look at this, this is great. I mean, it sounds simplistic. It sounds almost Hollywoodish the way I'm talking, but I don't know what else to think. I don't know. I mean, if you're a Rockefeller. I mean, just think about yourself and how exhausting it is just to live day to day. Would you really want to be in their position? What possesses a man to do that? Well, <laughs> Josephson, uh, certainly in 
his other books, I recall, he, he writes what the Rockefellers were like on a, a, in their daily lives. And they did have some psychological scarring, some, some aberrant behavior. Uh, and it apparently took a toll on their wives often. And they, apparently the Rockefellers as a whole, uh, usually, certainly uh, John D. suffered from this, but some of the others did too. But even though they were, by that time, just staggeringly rich, they were, nevertheless, every day of their lives, living in fear of poverty. They They were absolutely overwhelmed with a fear of losing it all. And imagine having that much money and living in constant fear of, of having it taken away, even though there was, there's no chance of that ever happening. Yeah. Oh, well, there is. That's, they also had some weird other peculiarities, uh, <laughs> medical peculiarities. I, I do want to get, I don't want to forget to mention this. Josephson records how even while John D. Rockefeller was having his various corporations and, and journals besmirch and oppress and squelch the competing medical schools so that allopathy could thrive. While he was doing all that, he himself kept a homeopathic physician for himself. <laughs> and another little weird thing he did now listen to this, and you can imagine. Okay, you take a look at men, elite, elitely connected men like uh, David Rockefeller today, Henry Kissinger, even some rock singers who have been rumored to have secret societal connections, like say, take a David Bowie. You look at men like that, and they are by now very old, and yet they're still going. They're still very active, and they don't look as decrepitly old as they actually are. They, there's something about the health care that those guys are receiving <laughs> that the rest of us aren't privy to. Now, but they, they were doing alternative health things, sometimes weird ones, all the way dating back to John D. Rockefeller. One of them that's kind of, that is bizarre, that Josephson records is apparently John D. Rockefeller kept his own <laughs> private uh, wet nurse to uh, breastfeed him as a grown old man. Uh, <laughs> really? And not at all for sexual reasons, apparently. No, it was just for <laughs> uh, health-related reasons or beliefs, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Like David Bowie and that, you know, OTO we're talking about now. and uh, Yeah, yeah. We're talking to, you know, these guys that are practice Satanism. And uh, they they uh, Clearly, if you're part of the OTO and you're following Crowley, eventually you're going to be doing these things like child sacrifices, all these sexual black magic rituals. These uh, Is there something that goes along with that? Is there something that uh, somehow because their fear of death, uh, they follow the satanic system that keeps them going, for the for the temporary, for the meantime, 
I'm like the rest of us, you know. There's something more going on. It's, it's, it's just um, the fact that they have different medicines, they have uh, you know, different nutritional regimens, whatever. I'm sure that's part of it. But there's something greater going on there. I really believe that. Since somebody like myself who... Would... I suspect... I suspect it's some form of uh, blood transfusion thing they're engaging in, but I, 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 it's only speculation, obviously. Well, yeah, listen, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I can't think of the name of the IV that I've been taking the past two years every time I have a major relapse. But that's basically what it is. It's somebody else's blood plasma they're giving to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's keeping me going, so... Uh, it seems uh, well, it goes back to scripture scripture Old Testament says the, the life is in the blood that's why God doesn't want you to consume blood really disturbing my friend the fact that the more and more we learn about these things and the ruling elite people like the Rockefellers uh, what motivates them what they're actually doing the fact that so many others are willing to just capitulate and comply and just say, yes, we'll do what you say, you know. Give me the money. Give me the big house. Uh, we'll do whatever you want. And I think what I find, one of the most important messages I find in this is how so many are willing to just bow down to this wicked system. Because you and I aren't that person. Maybe we were that person, but today, because what we know, and, you know, we still are stuck in the system and we still have to do what we have to do to survive but the more and more we learn the more we realize how wicked basically everybody else around us is <laughs> and that's, that's why that's why I really enjoy reading well I, say, I, I really enjoy reading uh, non-fiction books by authors real historians such as Emmanuel Josephson and, and also by the way fiction books by men like uh, rare men like George Orwell. I, I enjoy reading these rare people in whom, as I put it often, uh, the brainwashing did not take. In the, 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 as you just mentioned, the brainwashing of our culture didn't set with us for some reason. Well, the same goes for these authors whose, well, especially in the case of these historians like Josephson, their works are suppressed. They're, they're ignored. They they, get, they used to get published. They're, they're not published anymore, and they're not going to be published anymore. There's a reason for that. <laughs> There's a, the powers that they were exposing are actually the, the corrupt powers that are running this country. They own the publishing houses. And it's so, it's so important to at least to have a cursory knowledge of this stuff. You don't have to be a great scholar. You don't have to be one of these people that reads from cover to cover all these books, but just to know them, to get the gist of it, to get a better understanding of your world, uh, as disturbing as it is, as unsettling as it is, it, it's absolutely important. I think it's really part of, uh, it's one of those things that I believe that uh, what the Spirit of God does to wake a man up is to realize how fallen we are, how fallen the state of humanity is, how bad it really is, and how much you need a savior. <laughs> and because you will, we are, the only reason why we are not down is because of him. That's it. 
And I'm not talking about, you know, as far as the Rockefeller and their status and how much power they have. But let's face it. I mean, we know guys who are nothing more than security guards. They're SOBs and they're given the opportunity to do the same darn thing. Well, here's here's what, unfortunately, you get from today's evangelical, especially, I suppose, American evangelical. And, for, and you fortun, unfortunately, you can't use the word Protestant anymore because they're not protesting anything. But today's uh, evangelical Christian that typically uh, embraces the the Roman the uh, the interpretation of Romans 13 to be uh, all submissive to the the state government, even to the point of rendering their churches over to the state government today, ridiculously, uh, and their children. But um, what you get from them is uh, when they would hear something like, hear us talking, and they would say, uh, even if they halfway believed it, they were willing to entertain the thought, they would ask us, you know, what does it profit you to to harp on this stuff? You know, just focus on the good stuff. And, and you know, this, here is the problem with that. You know, of course, and some of them go beyond that. And um, <laughs> not, yeah, a lot of them idolize a guy like Rockefeller. Yeah, they idolize Rockefeller and George Bush Jr. and uh, some of the other financial pundits like Warren Buffett. They they do idolize these people, and they idolize charlatans like Billy Graham too, who is was not set up and paid for and controlled by the Rockefellers all along, and that is factually documented. Uh, they do. They do. Now here's the th- okay. My answer to that would be. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah condemns the practice of someone who would look at evil and call it good. And you also have, uh, in the book of Micah, uh, there is a verse which, uh, wherein, not just a verse, but a few verses, but one in particular, wherein the people of Israel at that time, during Micah's time, God condemned for following for adhering to the laws of their corrupt king at that time. That is in the book of Micah. Now, no one is talking about rebellion, because that, the, the, this is where the, the unlimited submission Romans uh, 13, today's evangelical Christian, would, would go, oh, well, you're talking about revolting against the state, and that's clearly condemned by St. Paul. Yeah, that's true. Nobody's talking about, if you're a Christian, you should, no, I, we're we're not talking about uh, engaging in open armed rebellion against the state. That would that would be ridiculous just from an, uh, for a number of secular reasons, uh, like the weaponry disadvantage, for example. But uh, no one's in, we're not talking about that. We're talking about not obeying these uh, the, the the laws. We're not we're talking about not calling evil good as these Christians today would. For example, when they embrace today's warfare, today's warfare overseas where we're engaging in building an American empire and killing masses of civilians all over the place overseas to build an American empire, uh, that's evil. Oh, and, and we're enriching the Halliburtons and the Dick Cheneys and the Rockefellers of the world and the Bushes. That's all evil. 
But they're calling that good. They're they're embracing patriotism, and, and, and if you listen to mainstream Christian radio stations, heaven forbid, as I used to, uh, they're they're, they're in, embracing all of that. As I suppose institutional churches always have, especially if they're state licensed, 501c3, state incorporated, all that. They have to, because the state is actually their creator. Uh, and then they also, as you said, they idolize these these uh, these politicians and celebrities and rich people. Uh, one that they idolized certainly was George Bush Jr., just because he came out and declared himself a Christian. He hired a guy named Doug Weed, a former Assembly of God minister to teach him some Christian jargonese, some contemporary Christian jargonese. And uh, that's all it took to completely brainwash, to, to dupe American evangelicals into falling for, to idolizing this George W. George Bush Jr. character, when in fact George Bush Jr. was a uh, Luciferian secret society member, benefited from that all his life, couldn't quote from the Bible to save his life, obviously, and uh, also was uh, quoted publicly on more than one occasion of stating that Jesus Christ was not the only way to heaven. That's, that's, that's not a Christian. That's some form of a secret society, Freemasonic belief system. And sees the Pope as God. And truth well, is, ultimately, yeah. It's pretty clear at this point that he, was, he, he is a sodomite and... Uh, Imagine that. It's like everyone else who seems to be in our lifetimes called themselves president. So they were just totally perverse on all levels of humanity. Well, you know? this is the problem. In today's American evangelicals have so over... They've taken that, that especially Romans 13 and submitting to the civil government, they've taken it so far as... Not, not just to, to not engage in, in armed rebellion against your government. They've taken it so far that they believe you have to idolize Caesar in the civil government. And that's what they are, in fact, doing now. Embracing yeah. the idolatry of patriotism and hero worship. And, and the belief that these mainstream systems of medicine, with their anti-scriptural vaccinations and all of these other things, they automatically embrace those as well, most of them. You know, interestingly, they've been smart enough to get out of this, the, uh, to, with the homeschooling thing, they've been smart enough to, many of them, get out of that, but um, that's really been about the limitations of what they've come out of, as they have, that's just it. Jesus told you to come out of her? That's right. My people, they haven't come out of her, except for that. Well, see, that's what the real battle is. It's not battle. It's not us warring against the satanic system that encompasses the whole world. It's that we don't comply. We don't capitulate anymore. We don't recognize. We don't be a part of. You know, it's this, this, this the reality. You know, a lot of people will say otherwise and say we're supposed to be doing this, that, and the other, and be involved in all this. But how can you be really? A, you have to make a decision. A real decision, that day-to-day decision to change is a magnifying of this consequence of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is that you will come out of the system, and you will be hated for it, you will be isolated from it, it will be look at our lives, you will be... 
Now, you, you will lose many friends. You will lose positions and all this kind of stuff. Uh, God didn't say that, you know, following him would be an easy journey. The reward is eternal life, not a rich and wealthy existence in this life. It's eternal life. And so it's just coming to terms with that, what it really means on a day-to-day basis. I think that's the reason why we need to study this, why we need to study history, where we really need to analyze what the political system is like, where we need to analyze what the medical system is like, so that we know what not to be a part of and what to be a part of. And the more and more you study, you realize just about everything we're not supposed to be a part of. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not supposed to be a part of government either, I'm convinced. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people will say that's wrong and that's how we're going to change things unless we get Christian-like people in government. Well, listen, if... If the Satan Satan tempted Christ with all the you know the kingdoms of the world, uh, uh, what is he saying there? He's saying he controls all these systems and his governments. You know, I, you being in the political system, I will reassure you, will take away. You will not. You will lose Christ. Yeah, you may gain the world, but you're going to lose your soul being part of it. That's yeah. the reality, and the truth is coming to terms with that. You never lived in a Christian country. No one has. There's been Christians in this country. There's been a Christian influence, thank goodness, but you have never lived in a Christian country. You have to come back. And I think that I think that is a real reason why Paul dealt wrote separately of the, the civil powers versus the uh, ecclesiastical powers. There's a separation there. There should be a separation. There's always a separation. He didn't write. Nobody wrote in Scripture about. Uh, Christians, or men of God should, well, yeah, okay, ancient Israel, but in the New Testament, you don't have any admonition of Christians that they should get into government. None whatsoever. Right. And it, part of the delusion is, is, like, for instance, this recent thing about gay marriage, which, you know, you and I have talked about, you know, my feelings about it. I think that government shouldn't be involved in marriage, period. So for me, you know, the gay marriage thing is just another, a licensing of a aberrant behavior and to give more power to the, the state, that's all it is. It, it has. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there is no. They really don't really constitutionally have any real control of the situation. We it's just people saying, "Hey, listen, give us a piece of paper. We'll give you some money. Recognize the yeah. fact that we're married." He's asking the state now, not asking God. They're asking the state. So what? If they want to do that, you know, what's the difference? You know, this has been around for thousands of years. It's just because you and I didn't grow in a civilization where it existed. But my point being in all that is, is you look at all these, quote, unquote, Christian conservatives who are so upset and want to fight it and think that somehow if they were involved more in the government that this never would have happened, they're delusional. It was pre-scripted a long time ago. This was going to happen to this country, and it's just, and it's just there was nothing that you as a Christian could have done anything about it. Well, concerning that debate, Michael, the Christians I would say are um, they're stupid. <laughs> they're stupid on two fronts and two fundamental foundational fronts. They're missing the point. Number one, right at the beginning, uh, and I would take go back to. My favorite author, George Orwell, this is uh, on this. It's a, a major theme that runs throughout his book. 
never underestimate the power of our language. Never underestimate the power uh, of the language that we use to control or manipulate our thoughts. And so these Christians, when they let their ideological opponents uh, dictate the language that they're going to use in, this, in, the, in, a, in any de- debate, they've already lost half the battle. And so when they approach this, for, um, when they approach, approach this debate and call it uh, a gay marriage debate, they're letting homosexuals dictate the language they're going to use. The homosexuals have taken, they <clears throat> absconded with that, off with that, that, that word gay that used to mean marry, and they've taken it to describe their lifestyle because it's a happy word. It has connotations of happiness. And so the, the Christians are foolishly using that word when they describe this debate instead of just using the neutral word homosexual, which I, they should do. I'm not talking about using any um, <clears throat> pejorative word. No, just use the neutral word. And don't let your this. They do the same foolish thing when they get into debates with evolutionists and let uh, evolutionists uh, call the debate uh, evolution versus creationism. They let they they stupidly let the uh, the uh, evolutionists stick the ism on them instead <laughs> of themselves and calling it evolutionism. It's the same thing. Right. Uh, the importance of language upon our thought should not be underestimated. Now, the second foundational way that Christians are missing the boat here concerning the homosexual marriage debate is licenses, is the marriage license. They don't know their history. The marriage license in American history is a relative, at least the ubiquity of it, is a historical novelty. What happened a little over a century ago... Uh, I'm not even sure why. I'd like to, I, I wish I had time to research this topic and write a book about it. But a little over a century ago, uh, Americans started, uh, when they went down to their, even to their church to get married, they would also obtain a marriage license with the state. Uh, what that does, uh, by the way, previously, in the back going, before that in American history, the only reason you would get a marriage license would be. Unfortunately, if, say, a white person wanted to marry a, a black person for the, uh, the, 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 the supposed crime back then of miscegenation, that would be the only call for a marriage license. Other than that, almost nobody would get a marriage license. What would happen would be uh, people would get married in their respective churches because ultimately, going back to the book of Genesis, it was God who ordained marriage. So the churches would handle marriage. That each individual couple would record that marriage in their family Bible, and that would become law, not just within the church, but you know what, also with Caesar, the state government, and still today, unless something's changed extremely recently, uh, that if you marry and record it in your family Bible, that becomes law with the, the civil government as well. Right. However, a little over a century ago, people started in droves, not just for miscegenation purposes, but also just for getting married to anybody, they started getting a state marriage license. When you get married with a marriage license, a number of things happen. What, 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 legally, what you do is this. The boy and the girl, the soon-to-be husband and, and wife, they are declaring themselves incapable of governing their own affairs. They're declaring themselves wards of the state in, the, in need of a legal guardian. 
And so what they're really doing with a state marriage license, they are entering into a polygamous three-way union. It's a three-way marriage with the state on top, with the state, in other words, being the actual head of the family. And what that does is gives property rights of the children to the state. Now, in a patriarchal system, and I'm not sure, I, I would love to research this, but uh, in a true patriarchal system, uh, the property rights to the children uh, are the father. They go back to the father. They've never gone to a mother, and they never will. Uh, but they, uh, today, the property rights uh, are to the state because with the, with a marriage license. And so that is what legally gives the, the state uh, social lady, social services, the right to come in and uh, snoop around and even take your children away if, say, some uh, angry neighbor <laughs> – some disgruntled neighbor uh, places a, a, a complaint call against you as a parent. That's what gives social lady the right to come and take the state's children away because the biological parents are legally nothing more than babysitters. They're, they're, uh, they're guardians, legal guardians over the state's children. That's the legal reality. And so here you have evangelical Christians today who are debating this topic of, have been for a few years now, debating the topic of homosexual marriages and railing against it when they're missing the fundamental point completely. Uh, You, evangelical Christians, did you get married with a state marriage license? Well, the state, you've given the state control over marriage. And the state, the civil government, once you do that, the civil government can marry whomever or whatever it wants. So what are you complaining about? It was you, Christians, who rendered to Caesar that which is God's, just like they did with their own churches, with the 501c3 and state incorporation, also in the last century. The 20th century was the destruction of American Christendom, and they did it to themselves. In just about every case, I think you, you will encounter of that, it was the Christians who gave it all away. Just kind of like um, Esau with the, with the, for the bowl of porridge, with, with Jacob gave his uh, birthright away, the Christians gave it away. They didn't value anything. They didn't value what they had. They gave it away. Yeah. And then there's the other element to all this, too, is if you look at uh, who benefits the most from this license. He's the first state, and then there's the state church. And you look at that, there was just a recent report of a church in Texas where they married a bunch of gay couples. And so you think about it, who profits also from this? The state church, the 501c3 churches. Were they really seriously caring about it? The majority of them didn't really care about the fact of gay marriage. And what they wanted, it was as well as an opportunity to profit from it. It's about profit once again. It's about uh, profiteering off of our stupidity, our compliance of something as ridiculous as a marriage life. I mean, pretty yep. soon, pretty soon, folks. Don't be. It, it, it's not a stretch of the imagination that has been recorded in history before. You don't have to have a license just to breathe. Well, they're nationalizing. I understand Scotland just nationalized water. 
So pretty soon, yeah, if they ever can, they, maybe they'll try to nationalize air at some point. <laughs> you know, or, or privatize, which in a corporate state is the same thing, right? Yeah. So it's it's it, it is an absurdity, and also I think it's you know, how is it? Going back to this whole thing, we know Rockefeller and medicine and how they want to control all your aspects of your life and to profiteer from it and to, as you say, power is the ability to cause others to suffer and also to capitulate to your will. That's right, yeah. God men, you know, they're all, there's little God men, you know. Follow them, follow what they have to say, and um, they know what's best. So it's really quite tragic what's going on in this country. It's quite tragic what's going on in the world. Um, and um, it's really quite disturbing. So uh, it, it isn't. These are important issues to talk about, to discuss logically, rationally. I mean, just the fact that, like you, introduced me through James Montgomery, the fact what happened with the Treaty of 1783. I mean, that changed the game right there for me. It's like, wait a minute. They've been playing us a fool on just about every aspect of it. And everyone else, would, it's like a giant sandbox where everyone's playing some stupid little game with each other. You know, no one's really thinking it through. We just comply one thing, one thing after another. Whatever, the doctor says it's okay, then that's the way it is. I mean, to your point, you're in a situation like me. I'm enslaved in the medical system. I don't have a choice. Unless I want to die. I suffer dying. <laughs> well, I, th- I think they want to make everybody that. Yeah. So it goes back to this, you know, where we started out with the topic of this and about how the Rockefellers and controlling the medicine and corrupting it and how disease and suffering started from this whole institution that we're under the institution and is that, you know, as people, or those who may listen to this or are in a position to do something about their children and protecting them from these designer diseases, to be very careful about the medicine that you're taking. Yeah, and ultimately, uh, you can talk about the cost of, of health care, the dramatic rise that happened in the past, what, 40 years? I think you can, obviously, I think you can trace that back to uh, what Josephson was writing about with the Rockefeller takeover of mainstream medicine. And now with the, the, the rise of nationalized health care, it's, again, all about power. And I think you can trace that back to what Josephson was writing about with the Rockefeller takeover of medicine. All the same Root system. Yeah. It's very tragic. I don't know what else to say, but it's very tragic to think about it. I think about, I think about you know, I think about our children's future and good grief. What are they going to go through? Just think about what we've gone through. What are they going to go through? It's not getting any better, folks. It's getting worse. And uh, we do have to do our due diligence. We have to uh, figure out what's going on. We have to educate ourselves, try to educate others who are willing to listen, not because of fear-mongering, not because we want to try to, you know, cause people to give up hope, but there is an answer to all this, and that 
we reality is things aren't going to get better as far as this world goes. And there really are, we have to accept the fact that we are, uh, the, the rulers of this world, are, they're very corrupt at the core. They really don't care about you and your best interests, your kids' interests, uh, or, excuse me, your children's interests. They don't like kids. Um, but, you know, they really, they don't care about you. And you've you got to learn to accept the fact that when that person shows up with a nice smile and a smooth talk, that that's, you know, that's not truly who they are, and you should not base your judgments on whether you like that person's personality or not. What are they actually doing? What are the results of their actions? And uh, discriminate against who they are. We do have to. People say, you know, it's discrimination, you know. Well, guess what? We do have to discriminate. We have to make judgments. We have to not be blind followers of what everyone else is saying and doing. You know, uh, because the fact of the matter is we're dealing with people, especially people that have had the Spirit of God in them, they will manipulate you. They will deceive you. They will take advantage of you, your children, for profit, for power, for their Luciferian goals, for the you know service of the prince of this world, and um, it's quite tragic. I mean, the more and more I learn about this, I don't know what else to say. I know I've probably said the word tragic at least three dozen times, if not more, in the show. But <laughs> I don't know what else to say. The more and more I learn about this, we were talking about this last week. I'm like, I don't even know where to go with this show at this point anymore. What do I do with it? You know what I mean? You know, because you know, you learn from guys like Keith Hansen, and I'm learning from you, and so my growth, you know, is exponentially faster. And I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for less than a year, and what? I don't even know what to do. I really don't. I mean, it's like I know we have to do this. We have to warn people. The few people that will listen and educate them and educate ourselves, but it's so. It's heartbreaking. Well, as you mentioned last week, and I experienced this, Biz experienced this, and now you are experiencing it. The the longer you go and the more you, you study, you find out, it becomes harder and harder to find and less and less worthwhile to interview guests. Unfortunately, because there, there really just there aren't very many people who get it. There's you got guys who halfway get it, three quarters get it, but um, or do, you, you got know, it. they have an agenda. Yeah, you, you, know, you got to. Their agenda is either selling a book or it's uh, which you know in itself is not a bad thing. Uh, or they're, they're selling their religion, or they're selling, you know... Or they're still believing in the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. Yeah. They, they, those types have not shaken the idolatry of patriotism. They need to dump that. Yeah. And then you got the Blanchets who hate the Jews. And, uh, yeah. and then there's the Jews who hate others. It's like one group against the other. You know, just be honest about it. You know what I mean? At this point, humanity itself is so corrupt, it doesn't matter what group you belong to. <laughs> uh, uh, the only thing that really matters that I've come to the conclusion is, which ironically, 
maybe with this book closing the show this way is going full circle again and I hate to keep I hope I don't I hope I don't feel you I don't I don't make you feel uncomfortable I keep saying this but uh, the fact is it was a guy like you of all people that got me to even open up the Bible to even fall on my knees and pray because you get to a point you go like if this isn't true then there's no hope if, if the word of God is not true, if the story of Jesus Christ is not true, there really is no hope for humanity. That's another, <laughs> I don't want to say benefit, but that's another result. I guess, yeah, unfortunately, it, it's a benefit of, of uh, you know, we might, we get asked, you know, what's the point in talking about this, harping on all this negative stuff? Well, one major point, another major point is it keeps you from loving this world. It prevents you from forming any idolatrous relationship with this world. You, you, you see this world for what it is. You see people for what they are. Yes, it's extremely alienating, intensely, I suppose, um, isolating at times, the feeling you get. Um, however, you don't make the mistake of becoming friends with this world, and Scripture warns us not to do that. And yet American evangelicals today, by and large, well, they don't see too much with this world they have a problem with. They, they, boy, they love our country and the founding fathers and the Constitution and, and this war we have going overseas and the, uh, you name it. Yeah, and you got to go kill the go kill the the Muslims and or whoever <laughs> the newest enemy is. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, it's really. You have to. It's one thing to say, like you said earlier, you know, the Bible is not to be friends of this world. What does that mean? Well, the only way to really know what that means is to study this stuff, to open up your, you know, to go research, go so what is the world really about? Because you were not told the truth in school. You were not truth, told the truth in uh, television or even in your church what the world's really about. Uh, yeah, and don't let me forget this, because another thing you're going to be hit with from the evangelical crowd that are still hooked into the the big brother. Another thing you're going to get is um, they're going to bring up the, the verses in Scripture which tell us that we can't uh, leave off meeting together, they, they, that we still must uh, fellowship together and don't stop doing that. Don't isolate yourself. They're, they're going to bring that up. And you, our response should be this. They're, they're right. They're right. But that does not mean... Here's... That does not mean we're supposed to meet in a state-incorporated church. Exactly. My, my, my response to them is this. Oh, oh, you're right. So find me find me a New Testament church, and I'm there, man. And, of course, they're going to say, well, come to ours. And I will say, are you state-incorporated in 501c3? And they won't know, but then when you push it and you find out, yes, you're state-incorporated, 501c3, then that means your church is not a New Testament church because, of course, obviously, a New Testament church means that Christ is the head. Well, if you sign the state incorporation papers, become a corporation, you formally declared, officially declared, legally declared that the state is your creator, is the creator of that institution. That's not a New Testament church. So what we should be doing is meeting in homes, meeting in uh, buildings that uh, informally that are not set up our own, as Paul outlined that the organization of the New Testament church should be, 
with the bishops and the deacons and all that, but not the offices, uh, these, these formal seminary institutional offices of bishop and deacon. No, that's not it. Uh, there's, there's no secular incorporation about it because then you're a creature of the state. We, we are to be cre- uh, creations of the Lord. And so that, that's what Christians, yeah, Christians are supposed to maintain fellowship and keep meeting, but not in state-created, state-incorporated churches. That's, right. that's not New Testament. And I think the other thing, too, that was a very important dynamic to it all is, and I, I, the irony of this, like this, doing this show and having these conversations, Jordan, is that we are more likely, just in the past couple hours, had more of a real what the church is supposed to be like than what we would ever experience in a state-funded, state-controlled pseudo-community called church, the religion today, Christianity. Because you need to have these conversations. You need to work this stuff out. You need to be able to have the freedom of conscience, the freedom of expression to know these things to realize that our first allegiance and our only allegiance is to Christ, our God, and it's not to this world. But how do you know that unless you have these honest discussions? And you know what will happen in all these churches is you'll be just, they've been programmed, like everyone else, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're a negative. I've been told that I'm under the influence of Satan himself because of doing this stuff. Don't you love that? Don't you love, don't you love people who call something a theory, much less a conspiracy, but let's just focus on the word theory for a second. They label something a theory without even investigating it whatsoever, typically. Uh, it, the, the, the fact is that many of these things we're throwing around, maybe even the majority, are not theory. They're actual fact. Uh, but, you know, pretty smart people like, say, Albert Einstein had a a famous quotation about people like that. Uh, uh, What is it? Unthinking respect for authority is the greatest enemy of truth, something like that. So if you don't think, if you just accept what the authority tells you and you don't think, that's a problem. But you know what? Scripture itself has something to say about that. In the book of Proverbs, it states that uh, the man who condemns something without checking it out, obviously it's paraphrasing. In Proverbs, it says that when you condemn something without investigating it, oh, that actually, no, that's the Einstein quote. Condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. That's the Einstein quote. And in Scripture, it tells basically the same thing. It says... uh, it's folly, and sh- if, you, if you condemn something without even hearing it out, meaning checking it out, if you, then that is folly and shame unto you, says Scripture. And that's what people do, though. That's what people do. And yet their Scripture tells them not to do it. You call something a theory, and you don't know if it's a theory or a fact. That's, that's it. So it's interesting of... The dynamics of the majority of humanity is that they're actually operating under guesswork theory, uh, theories that are not proven. And they believe in a lot of these things, whether it's uh, evolution or is it 
you know, whether we went to the moon or, you know, whether, you know, whatever it may be, there's a million things, not a million things, but there's a ton of things out there. Vaccination. Yeah, vaccinations, the medical system. Uh, what's really is what it's about is, you know, and most people think that the medical system is there really for your benefit. When in truth, it's about enslaving you in sickness and uh, dependent upon their drugs. And I'm a living example of that. And it's really you know another biggie that, Michael, another biggie about that that seldom gets talked about, and this one's big. But if you read books like R.B. Pearson's The History and the Lie of Louis Pasteur, and I can remember William Cooper put a show, a, kind of a famous show about this out, but not only vaccinations, but the germ theory itself, the entire germ theory can also, you, well, you yourself put up a show about the, we can legitimately question the, uh, the heliocentric model of the universe, which was really fascinating, but you can also question the germ theory. And you know what? The germ theory might actually be errant, might be bogus. <laughs> this is really, in other words, pretty much everything we're told in this life might be, a, by mainstream sources, might be a lie. <laughs> Or twisted, it's, you know, or just plain errant, just plain wrong. And there's then there's the whole question about a virus: is a virus real? I don't know. I mean, if one thing is, I don't know if you ever tried on the internet to even find a picture of a virus, a photograph of one, or uh, and no, there are drawings and uh, CGI images. They're nothing more than that. <laughs> Mm, yeah. Uh, is it a theory or not? What is it a really a virus? You know, what is a virus? You know, um, but you know, these are things we should think about. Whether or not we come to a final conclusion or not, that's a whole another thing. But we should at least get to a point like we've been talking about of uh, not putting our faith and trust in this world, but in God, because you know, basically all of us. This my vision of what I see when I'm out in public, or I think about people, is a bunch of bobbleheads walking around, just spouting out lies. But we believe in them, theories. But we don't really know if it's true. That's how many of us have ever questioned anything. You know, how many of us questioned? You know what uh, we've learned? How many have really dug into an issue and said, you know? I, I want to know the truth about this, and I'll ask, you know, I'll, you know what, what's really going on here? Uh, whatever it may be. Maybe it's Obamacare, or maybe it's this gay marriage agenda, or what's going on in Charleston, or, or the Bible itself. Uh, hey, how about um, King James onlyism? You know, maybe I should look into that type of stuff, you know? It's okay to do those sort of things. And, and a healthy a healthy church, if you will, with a healthy group or society, you should be able to do that so that we can all grow in the knowledge of the truth and to develop. And I think it just seems like it's being systematically suppressed. And a big element of this suppression turns out to be the organized church. Yeah, yeah. And talking about a healthy society, healthy gathering, I would deem a healthy real church would be, to me, would be a a group of believers meeting together, obviously 
we're not going to agree on everything, especially given what you and I know, most people are not going to know about it. What should be able to happen is once Christians would get out of these institutional churches, you're going to, of course, have a great many, maybe even a majority of these evangelicals who, even if they left the mainstream church, they're still going to be retaining their beliefs in certain uh, wrongful beliefs, such as the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the rapture, for example, the premillennial rapture and all that. But you know what? What ought to be able to happen about those issues that are not pertaining directly to salvation is you ought to be able to meet together and read scripture and study scripture together and set aside all all your singing. (laughs) Maybe let the women go do that, whatever. But especially get men together and study scripture. And you know what ought to happen is uh, there's no Nicolaitan pastor, no hireling shepherd over you. Every, we're all priests under the Lord, and, and, and there ought to be an, a, a system, set up your own system, where each brother can speak for a time. And you can speak about issues where you even disagree. You can present forth your view. So you can have a rapturous come and speak before this, your local gathering of Christians who've come out of her, have a rapturous give their view, and then you give up and get up and give the historicist view. And, you know, let people decide and whatever. But unfortunately, what happens is uh, once a rapturist finds out that you, you don't go along with his rapture doctrine and, and vice versa, then, you, oh, forget it. I'm not meeting with that guy. When, why not? Why, you both believe in Jesus Christ and accepted salvation via Jesus Christ. You know that that's all you need. Meet together and go from there. And, you know, it doesn't mean you don't have to argue. You don't have to anything. Just get up and, and present your view in a logical fashion, a, in a teaching fashion, a debating fashion. It, why can't Christians do that? They, man, I, I, <laughs> I suspect it's because this rapture doctrine especially, and there are some others, but you, you, people begin to take doctrines like that, so they hold it and they begin to cherish it so much that it becomes as important as salvation in Jesus Christ itself, I think. I mean, sometimes I wonder if the blessed hope to them, such as there was a book called The Blessed Hope by a theologian named George Ladd, where he was a rapturist. He was a post-millennial rapturist, but he was a rapturist. I wonder if the blessed hope is not actually Jesus Christ coming back and salvation in Jesus Christ, but is actually just the rapture to them. It, It seems like it sometimes. Or, yeah, the avoidance of suffering and pain. <laughs> yeah. So well, somehow, it, we're not, we're not going to go through uh, what happened, say, in Europe during World War II and I, which, by the way, folks, a lot of those people in Germany were Protestant and were buying into this rapture theory, and they thought that nothing was ever going to happen. And they blindly accepted a, uh, a guy like Hitler, who was a Jesuit-trained uh, psychopath himself, and... Uh, took all the credit for the restoring of uh, Germany when really it was the people themselves and the fact that they separated themselves from the the banking system at that time in order to grow. But that's a whole other story. But the fact of the matter is is that what happens in the church, and not only in churches, but society as a whole, because we haven't been trained to critically think 
and to use the God-given brain that we have, we operate on emotion. And so instead of instead of keep on asking the question, even you know, even say, well, you know, always being willing to say, well, could I be wrong at the thing that I believe in? The best thing that you can approach, you could have in life, is say, "Well, give me more information about what I believe in to either support it or to let go of it." So you know what I'm saying. So, and what yeah. happens in religion and organized religion is people get stuck in their belief system, and a lot of it's error. They think they're absolutely right because they read a couple verses in the Bible, and they have, and they. Must know that they have it all right. You know, look at you know they're exposing the Antichrist or whatever. You know, some justification has been saying, you know, well, wait a minute, let me really research the issues and be willing to accept the truth. And a lot of times, what that means is is that you're not going to be in the group because people will operate so much in emotion, they're not going to listen to the truth. They're not going to listen to your reasoning, your argument, the facts that you found. Because what that offers to most, and I find this is what the real the body of Christ is, why you can talk about it being a remnant, is the more and more you come to the truth and the knowledge of the truth, the more and more fewer people you have in your life to the point you only have a few handful of uh, associates, acquaintances. And now we understand why this whole saying about you'd be lucky to die when you die that you, you have one friend. Hmm. Yeah. You know I mean, because that's the reality. The reality is as you love the way, the truth, and the life, well, you know, most people don't. What's your offering to them is what we're talking about to come out of her, my people. And and in the layers of this corrupt world that we live in, it's just profound. It's it's overwhelming. It's over. It's one thing after another. (laughs) Well, Mm -hmm. you know, what you're offering for many people, they will not accept because they love this world. In truth, they might not admit it, they might not accept it, they, what you have to say, but the truth is that's what they love. They, they love the world more than the truth. So, I don't know. Maybe we should start a community, of a commune of people where everyone has their own little cave. <laughs> they all be little hermits, you know what I mean? <laughs> Modern day hermits. Because that's what sometimes it feels like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But anyways, friend, thank you for joining me. I, Gordon, I know you're so busy. All the things are going on and uh, with your projects and with work and with your family. And for you to spend a couple hours with me, I know you other things that you really could have done. And uh, so I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the people that will listen to this show and those who have been listening will uh, appreciate it because there are insightful things that have been shared. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've always wanted for this show to be was a show like this. Well, you might not have felt like you accomplished anything, but the fact of the matter, just two men getting together and discussing these matters, even if it's at a cursory level, is really important because we lost that in our communities. We lost that in society. We don't have these types of conversations. That's why I love listening to your recordings of you and Keith talk. I wish you guys would get back to doing it. It's just like listening to a couple of uncles or cousins who actually know what the heck they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. uncles or cousins, yeah. You know what uncles. I'm saying? Yeah. And it's really, we've lost that as part of the things that we've lost in our culture because we're no longer allowed to talk about politics and religion. 
And we, uh, I, I remember my family gatherings as a kid growing up, and all it was ever about was Ohio State football or, you know, ignorance, an ignorant conversation about uh, politics, you know, superficial level where it's, you know, basically what they learn from their newspaper or television. And uh, it was meaningless. It was such a superficial experience, and it never really grew to know my uncles and my cousins and all that kind of thing. And so what we are lacking in our community and in our world today is just what you and I did tonight, this day. You know what I mean? Not where anybody's trying to sell a book or an idea. We're just discussing what we've learned, what we know, what we understand, what the world's really about. And uh, it's, I mean, listen, I mean, you've been around this, doing this a lot longer than me. Am I right? Am I wrong? What, what, do, what do you think? I, these uncles... You've mentioned uncles. I, yeah, Keith's mentioned learning important truths, uh, adult truths from uncles as a boy. Just listening off to the side or in the background as a child, and they don't think you're listening or they don't think you're capable of discerning, but you can. You, you can discern part of it, and it piques your interest. I remember my, my father and an uncle of mine having a conversation when I must have been nine and they were talking about sports and my uncle was talking about the famous fight it's actually probably the most famous boxing photograph ever it's got to be the fight between i forget if it was the first or the second i think it was the second the fight between uh cassius clay and son and sonny liston and my uncle and father were talking about it and my uncle was making the point that that fight was fixed and it was a phantom punch and, and the guy Liston wasn't even hit, but he, you know, he took a dive and he had mob connections and I'm listening as a boy thinking, cause I, you know, as a boy growing up, I would watch sports on TV and I'm thinking, wow, my uncle knows a lot about sports. This is intriguing. How does he know this? And so years later when I grow up and I watched footage of that fight and I watch it and I go, holy smokes. My uncle was right. Look, the guy was never even hit by the punch. He took a dive. <laughs> that famous photograph you have of Cassius Clay thumping his chest, standing over Sonny Liston on his back. What he really was doing, he wasn't, you know, saying, I'm great, I'm the greatest. No, he was looking down at Liston and probably saying something like, do a better job of faking it, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you learn good stuff from from uncles when you're a boy. If you just keep, yeah, kids are inquisitive. Boys, children, they're gonna they're gonna pick up things that grown ups say. Well, it was fascinating, but you bringing that up because now here we are, a photo, a public event. Uh, you know, as a as a kid, and uh, I had a friend, my best friend, and growing up, his dad did a lot of uh, arranging events town and uh, one of the things he would do was big time wrestling and uh, not that I was a big fan ever of big time wrestling but we had an opportunity to go watch like Ric Flair we got free tickets and I remember we were working out in the gym and he was there we were talking to these guys you know this is back in the you know the early 80s <clears throat> so we had a chance to go to the sports arena and watch this wrestling match and I'm telling you when you were there right there you see those fake the fake punches the fake the fakeness, the acting of it, how they miss each other by feet. 
Yeah. Just inches, but for you. And so, you know, you start, you put that together, you talk, you talk about Cassius Clay in that fight, and then you look at what's going on with Floss, false flags, and what's going on with Charleston, what's going on with, the, and just Charles is one example of the many scripted events on television that are designed to manipulate us. Yes. Yeah. To condition us to follow their agenda. And once you realize that they're willing to do stuff like, this, your idols, like the Ric Flair and the Big Time Muslim, nothing was my idol, but he was even creepy back then. I remember at the gym, he was like, working out with him, I was like, man, uh, I think of now, I mean, <laughs> good thing I wasn't alone with him in the gym. I don't know what he would have done to me. <laughs> He's a bit of a creep, but, uh, um, you know, that that's what's happened. Just the, the, uh, most of our life, whether it's the textbooks we've read in school, the books we got at the library, the uh, college, university, television, a lot of it has just been scripted stories to manipulate us when we talk about mind control. And so we should learn to develop this ability to discern and to critically think and ask questions. And really, a lot of the world will call us being cynical or negative but we should question what's going on around us because we're around a bunch of lies and liars and deceivers. Whether they know that that they're dead or not, this is happening. And how are we ever going to get back to a more realistic life unless there's this kind of conversation that has been taken completely out of the church, completely taken out of any social event where you just have this kind of conversation where a couple guys get together and just try to bash it out and talk about things, not knock each other, don't have to agree with everything, but just bash it out, what's really going on. Listen, and listen. I would submit to you that you could do that in the churches once you got out of the institutionalized corporation and building and you met as brothers and you abandoned that Nicolaitan hireling shepherd, one man over you leading the flock, uh, once you're all brothers and all can take the floor for a time and talk as men, then you could get back to that. That's what I would submit. Yeah, and you gotta you got to also kind of draw back the emotionalism. We've been con- conditioned and trained to be, you know, the, the Bible warns us about how the heart, how deceitful the heart is. We have to draw back our emotions. We have to, you know, when we're feeling offended, we have to ask ourselves, why am I feeling so offended? Why is my blood pressure rising? Is there something wrong? Because when you really are in the truth, if you hear something from somebody else is full of crap, you know, you say, you say, well, whatever, that's his opinion, he's full of crap. You don't respond. If you, once you really know the truth and you're solid in it, you don't get all emotional about it. You accept the fact that that person's where they're at, or you know, they, this is where they're, you know, what they've learned. Well, that's so another problem. If you're a person that believes in the say that pre-trib rapture, you believe in the rapture. You know, I can deal with that. I can deal with a person. You know, say they're you know a Sabbatarian. I can so I can personally associate with them. They're the ones that have the problem associating with me because I don't agree with them on that issue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, speaking of that, back when I did interviews, I I wanted to have on Dr. O. J. Graham, who wrote the excellent book uh, The Six Pointed Star. 
the so-called Star of David. Great book. I wanted to have him on. I only ever got to talk to his secretary because he was out of the country, but I talked to her like three times, and it was I was setting it up with her, and she was saying, yeah, when he gets back in the country, sure, he'll go on. But then I happened to mention, I said, look, could we just do one thing? I said, could, I know that Dr. Graham is, is a rapturist. Could we just avoid eschatology and just deal with his book? Boy, when I said that, the interview was over. They were not going to do it. <laughs> But then, you know, this, if one is really solid in the word, you know, this, you know, what do we say? He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's not so, he is not the, your belief. He's not your opinion. He's not what you're thinking. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So, yes, you know, as somebody who's grounded in, in this, and really, so you, you should become a lover of the truth, not of, I'm right, and my opinion means something. You know what I mean? And then mm-hmm. I really believe that there was a time, even in the synagogues, you know, way back when, thousands of years ago, that that's what men did. They got together and discussed matter. Well, you also have the case, <laughs> that's when men were men, and that's throughout most of history, men are men and women are women. But in our time, especially in the last, say, 50 years, there has been, and ultimately it probably goes back to the Rockefellers. Yeah, I, I think of at least one source on that. Um, that uh, through mainstream media sources, innumerable mainstream media sources, TV, radio, uh, movies, what you have is uh, little boys being brought up to be more effeminate and little girls being brought up to be more masculine. That's a big part of what the whole modern feminism thing is about. But it goes, I think, even beyond that, there's there's a general program to tell boys to express their feelings more. And, you know, like, that's their, the... Their, their feminine side. Yeah, yeah. And that is actually, in life, that's the opposite thing that those boys need to learn to be successful in life. So successful with the opposite sex, too, by the way. And, of course, there's this ultimate reality if one is honest about things that uh, when men get together and a woman comes into the room, things oh, change. It changes, it changes the dynamic of everything. And, and I'll tell you right now. And it's not the woman's fault. It's our fault. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, it's both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but, you know, if we understand what's really going on, we realize that we're being manipulated or we're manipulating each other. There's the old phrase, so I hate to say this, people, but there's this whole thing that happens in a man's mind, cock-blocking, where, you know, hey, I want her attention type of thing. And even married men of 30 years still go through this. Why it's so important that, you know, men get together as men without being there? And the, the places in society that men used to have, there used to be many of them where men could go to be men. Those have all been eradicated. And I mean literally all. There are no, except for, okay, except for uh, secret societal Freemasonic free lodges. Yeah, that's about it. Other than that, um, there's no place where men can go and be men anymore. The, the feminism has seen to it that men, you don't get that privilege anymore. Women can have their women-only spaces. They have many of those. But men can't have any space where we can go and just be men anymore. This is the last, this is the final year. Last year was it, um, Michael. I Over the years, the... Just because as you get more busy, 
when you're growing up as a boy and as a teenager, you, at least me and my friends, we used to watch a lot of sports. And then as you grow up, for, for me at least, uh, you've you got to narrow that down because you've got so many other things going on. And so for years, at least a decade now, the last sport that I ever spent time watching was the NFL. Last year was it. I will not be even, – even last year I only listened to a few games on the radio. I didn't don't have cable TV, so I didn't watch any. But this year, this is it. Uh, what's going on with the feminization of the NFL – is that's to me the last straw i'm i'm that was really in many ways it was a bastion of maildom these uh, the the nfl and they've been encroaching on that for years but i mean this year my goodness they're gonna they well they're gonna have the first female referee and the feminists love that you get a the this ultra macho world you get to have a woman be in being in an authority position over them and and then you have also, boy, now nobody at all ever endorses hitting anybody, least of all hitting women. But what you have nowadays, uh, with there's a, an epidemic of uh, NFL players uh, getting kicked out of the league and being suspended for domestic violence against their spouses. And what it's, what it's, nobody talks about the other side of that, though, and that is, uh, it is it is becoming open season on these male athletes who get involved with any kind of women because the, the women know now that uh, they're protected. And anything they say can, can be escalated in the press and get this young male athlete in trouble, and they have a lot of power over him. And to give you just one example of that, uh, very recently at the University of, I think it was Florida State, there was a quarterback on the team who got kicked off the team because he, uh, he hit a woman in a bar, which, of course, stupid, never should have done it. What nobody talks about, though, is they have video footage of it, and she hit him first. And you know what was done to her? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. There's a problem with that. Because think about it. If you're a female now in today's political climate, Boy, you can do anything you want to manipulate and exploit and go after these uh, uh, young athletes, especially if they're going to get into the NFL. Oh, my gosh, they're going to have some money, and you could hook onto them, and you've you got control over them if you cry domestic violence. It's really becoming open season on, on these young NFL players. So just you have the NFL just bending over backwards to – cater to the feminists. This was the last straw. I mean, there have been a, a number of straws unrelated to feminism that have caused my interest in that sport to wane, and this this is it. Uh, I'm done with the NFL. Yeah. So there goes another NFL, or I'm sorry, a, a male-oriented world. Uh, you can't have male all-male gyms for many years now, but you got all-female gyms. There, there's no place where men can go. They, our great-grandfathers had smoking clubs where they could go in town and, and, and meet and talk politics and shoot pool and smoke cigars and, just, and their women weren't involved. You can't have that today. There's something wrong with that. Well, you know, it's not only that. There's the feminization of the NFL and sports, but also there's the, the sodomizing of it. <laughs> I know it's a strong word for many people. That's what that is. I mean, they got what guys like Michael Sam, uh, you know, and all these other guys coming out of the quote-unquote closet saying, hey, yeah, I'm gay, and you got these guys 
dressing in women's clothing and all that, and it's all part of the ritual and how they uh, are just uh, distorting the lines between man and man and woman, and how important those lines really are. So, and then you say, "Well, you sound like you're a male chauvinist." Well, you know. I don't really care what you think I sound like. There's a truth. You know, there are men, and we have men things to do. There's women, and they have their women things to do. And there should be separated. Um, and um, this whole thing of just trying to embrace the perversion of the society and to say, hey, it's, everything's, a, everything's a go. You know, uh, we're supposed to discern. We're supposed to... Uh, whether you guys like it, you know, or not, it's you know, we're supposed to make judgments on who we're going to associate with, what we're going to accept, what we're going to promote. Uh, we don't have to think that we're better than anybody else. That's not the issue. The issue is, do I want to be part of this, uh, whatever it may be? And, and, and not only that, but now you go back to what you talked about about the. The, the boxing match that was all rigged and the guy, you know, hey, listen, this is turning out to be the same thing in NFL. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's rigged, too. You know what I mean? I'm convinced in a number of the games and even seasons, certain games are, are rigged. I'm convinced the 2001 season where the New England Patriots won their first Super Bowl over the Rams, they didn't really win it. That, that was orchestrated. If you watch the game... The Patriots were allowed to mug, hold, and practically assault the, the Rams wide receivers all, the, all through the game, and the referees didn't call penalties on that. Uh, but also, uh, let's see, in the playoffs leading up to that, the Patri- they came up with this thing called a tuck rule to get the Patriots past the Raiders in the playoffs. But the thing about that season, it was 2001, and it's right after 9-11, so, of course, the Patriots have to win the Super Bowl that year because you've got to whip up war fever. And then, sure enough, a few years later, after Katrina, you want to help reinvigorate the city of New Orleans. And so you've got this perennial uh, bottom dweller, one of the worst teams the NFL has ever produced, the, the New Orleans Saints, who suddenly get good and, and win the, uh, the Super Bowl. And I'm really... I, I'm very suspicious about that. Yeah, well, you should be, and their involvement with part of the social programming, the cultural programming that's going on. I mean, look at the, the Carolina Panthers and donating money to the fake shooting there in Charleston to the victims, <laughs> you know, promoting. You know, listen, really, sports and politics should not be mixed. If one's really honest about it, if you want to have the purity of the sports, the game, and it's clearly that that's not the case. Uh, is that a reason why not to watch sports? Well, that's one reason. I just find that it's a waste of time. And it goes back to this whole thing about what it used to be like when you were able to, in uh, social gatherings with your cousins and uncles and et cetera, and uh, Prior to the television and how everything now revolves around sports and a beer, and neither one of them are wrong in itself, but the fact is, let's face it, as men, you you know, you and I are getting up in age, we've been around on this earth and this 
for a while, half a century. How many meaningful discussions have we had like this with people in our surroundings? It's pathetic that you and I are forced to have to basically, in a phone conversation, in two separate parts of the world, have this conversation when it used to be the norm. You, everyone experienced those kind of conversations. Today, in order to have this kind of conversation, we have been forced to basically, through the Internet and through tell, to, you know, find someone like-minded to have this kind of meaningful conversation. There was a time, I believe, where men were able to get together and have these meaningful conversations. They didn't have to agree with everything. But just having these meaningful conversations, it was beyond sports or how hot that chick's body is or about money or about your own personal problems with the wife or work. You know, you had these meaningful conversations. And I believe that God made us, created men and women and humanity this way, this is how we were supposed to learn, how we're supposed to really grow. And it's been taken away from us. And we have to get honest with that. And now we have a box, whether it's the television or the computer. Or, or the worst of all now, because they always have them in front of them, are the smartphones. You see the younger young people now, they are growing up with such a fragmented attention span that they can't hold any kind of meaningful face-to-face conversation. They have no attention span for that. They, they can't hold face-to-face conversations with human beings. It, it's, I, but, but that's I, just there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can say about the young people, let's be honest about our own generation. It's the same way, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but it, it's it's worse. It's the the younger you go, the worse it gets. It, it, that's all they know. I agree with you on that. I mean, this it's it's magnifying. It's getting worse, but it's uh, you know that's why it's just having these shows and you sharing us books that you've read and just having this conversation that you know people can break away from this the internet, the world wide web. Just think about these terms that they actually use and what their real meaning is and how the Internet and the television really, first and foremost, were designed as military weapons and how they're being used on us. And the most important thing, you know, listen, people say, oh, you know, there's going to be some kind of revolution in this country. No, there's not. That's one of the most ridiculous things you could ever envision. (laughs) How often do men really get together and even have this type of conversation? It's very rare, if we're honest about it. My own personal experience with all the different men I've known in my life at a personal level, never had much of a meaningful conversation. It usually revolved around either their problems, overcoming something in their own personal life, what was wrong with their wife, or the football game, uh, whatever it may be, a, a very superficial level of the politics, and usually they ended up stomping away, acting like a bunch of kids. Because the truth of the matter is, for most of us, that's what we are. We're adult children. We have the, we're not capable 
of thinking anymore. And you know, I can put myself in that group. I'm only now growing up, if you will, as a man, and starting to think for myself, to challenge things, and it took a long time. And it's you know, um, and it took uh, very much a lot of effort on my part to kind of change my thinking. Change, you know what I mean? And uh, what we want, we were conditioned to want to have a quick fix. We want sound bites. We want to have uh, the answer given to us just like that. When the truth is, the deception is so grand, so big, that it will literally for the average man at this point. It'll take thousands of hours to break away to get to the point where you and I are at, if we're honest. That's what happened to me, and I'm sure that's what happened to you. It wasn't a couple hours. It wasn't a moment in a time. It's many moments in time and many hours either studying, researching, thinking things out, questioning things, which used to be, actually, I believe, much more of the norm of humanity. But today, it's not that way. Today, the average person just doesn't think, can't think. Now, they, in their compartmental world, they can think. They may, maybe they know a lot about stocks, and they're stockbrokers. They know everything about that. But that's as far as the big picture. The average person has no clue. We're not even—we're not even—we're conditioned not to even look at the big picture, are we? Just be compartmentalized and put your trust in everybody else. How dangerous this whole situation is. Anyway, sorry for the preaching there. <laughs> you're you're not mistaken in any of that. <laughs> so, anyways, you, we we spend more time than you planned on this today. So I really do appreciate you spending the time with me. Yeah, yeah. I hope this will happen soon. Again, I really do enjoy talking to you and listening and learning from you. So, Once again, folks, uh, Gord Comstock, you can find many of his, uh, some of his work on thinkorbeingbeaten.com. Listen to his readings of the, some of the very special books that he has found that are you know, not there in the mainstream media. If you really want to know how the world's really run, uh, listen to all the other folks that are on Think and Be Beaten, like uh, Keith Hansen, uh, James Montgomery, the informer, uh, Eric, the, Eric the uh, blacksmith. Thank you. <laughs> uh, um, and then, of course, you can also listen to some of, of Gordon's work on James Ambas. It's A M B A S. YouTube channel. It's very rare. The fight, it's hard to find anything from Gordon these days, but uh, it's worth the effort to listen to his readings and his conversations. Um, and hopefully we'll be blessed in the future of listening to Gordon again and maybe even Gordon Keith talk because uh, there are special moments, at least to me, and I know other people feel that way too. So. Uh, not a lot, of course, but there's other people out there. <laughs> We're not going to change the world, but <laughs> but we can change one person at a time. So I'm going to end the recording now, but you stay on, okay? Okay. Okay. All right, folks. Uh, God bless and take care. Oh yeah, one more thing I want to mention. So because we were talking about the book uh, that Gordon is reading right now, it's called Rockefeller, the Internationalist, right? The man 
who, who misrules the world. Yes, and uh, you can find that. That was Emmanuel Josephson, and it sounds like it's worth a read. Spend some time at least looking into it. And uh, I'll leave it at that, so I'm going to end the recording here. God bless. Take care, everybody. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.